0: April 27th, year 2021, coordinates revealed, this is not a drill, Robert S. Leifer and Justin M. Siegel at CIA infiltration, agent 001, anonymous, code DTM, fire on command, prepare to liquidate assets.
1: On episode 32 of the bot, we're back, or are we? You're listening to the fastest-growing moderate political podcast in the nation. This is Down the Middle, a political podcast. Wow, here we are. It's been almost two months to the day, Justin. Hey, we're in the bunker. We are in the bunker. We are in the bunker, and uh, we are back, and we have a lot of explaining to do, Justin.
2: (laughs) We have some explaining to do. (laughs) We we
1: definitely have some explaining to do, but before we get to anything like that, we must first do a little housekeeping after this two-month break uh, that we're coming back from because you got to pay the bills, especially after a vacation. So let's take care of that quickly. Honest Abes, go. When
0: he growed up, this tiny babe, folks all
3: called him Honest Abe, Abraham, Abraham.
1: Now, as you guys know, both Justin and I are big fans of capitalism. You, the listener, have a fantastic opportunity to partake in our lovely system of capitalism by purchasing some of our products. The way it works is that you give us your money. And we send you something that you want in exchange for that money. Oh, what then, a system. Exactly. And then we That's use incredible. that money to grow our moderate political enterprise. Yay, capitalism. Right, Justin?
3: Ah.
1: <laughs> so there has never been a better time to tell us how much you love the Down the Middle podcast. And therefore, you should strongly consider buying some of our products that are still on the market Go to our socials for the link. I know it's been a long time. Start early by indoctrinating your kids, your family, your coworkers into moderate values. Justin, anything else to say about this before we move on and never look back? There's never been a better time to buy a baby onesie. <laughs> it's very true. And we know we've left you in the lurch for two months and we're going to get to all that. We're going to explain it. But that doesn't
2: mean that we don't have good products still for sale. That's true. We got mugs, we got t-shirts, we got wristbands, we got masks, although you don't need them outside anymore if you've had the vaccine. So don't buy a mask if you've had the vaccine and you're planning on going outside.
1: We're going to get to that too. Okay. So that's pretty much it for Honest Abes. Um, We hope you enjoyed it. Now, some of you out there might be currently in a relationship that you're not so sure about. And maybe it's because your significant other is selfish, just like a lot of podcast segments tend to be. So Justin and I are not relationship counselors. This isn't Love Line with Dr. Drew. This isn't Dear Abby. This is just Down the Middle, a political podcast. However... If we were to ever find ourselves in the position of having to give relationship advice, we would tell you to find somebody that cares about you as much as the following podcast segment cares about you. This segment is called We Care a Lot. Okay, Justin, uh, we got one question for this week, and it's pretty much from everybody, like everyone who's ever listened (laughs) to the podcast. So why
2: don't you read the question, and uh, we'll take it from there. Okay, I will read the question. Uh, The question is, what the hell happened to you guys? Oh,
1: how predictable, but how necessary. This is a question that we need to answer. Okay, so Justin, if you don't mind, if I go first and give my life update before I turn it over to you, I think we owe everyone an explanation like, like Absolutely. Please saying. go right ahead. Yeah. So when we started this podcast it was toward the beginning of the pandemic. Now Justin had never really stopped working but he definitely had more time on his hands than he did before the pandemic. I on the other hand Went from working, you know, usually an average of 50 to 60 hour weeks to literally almost nothing overnight. I would get a job here and there, but outside of my family duties, I was left with a lot of time on my hands to focus on this podcast, which took up a good amount of time for us. You know, we were putting in probably a good, you know, 12 to 15 hours a week collectively. The research, the gathering of your thoughts, the recording, the editing, this stuff all takes time. Now, there's good news and bad news. Good news first, okay? Okay. I am personally seeing the effects of this vaccine in real time. Both Justin and I are vaccinated now, by the way, just in case you were worried about uh, getting COVID through the airwaves. But essentially, as soon as the vaccine started to drop, my work started to come back slowly and then not slowly and then but. You know, surely it was it was back back. And uh, fast forward a few months, uh, I went from working no more than like 25 percent of what I was working pre pandemic to now I'm probably around 95 percent back. So I put this in the good news category because it means that despite the fear mongering, the media may be hitting you with this pandemic is on its way out. People are going back to regular life. And this is a good thing for all of us. I am seeing it in real time. I think we're all ready to move on. The bad news is that there's simply not enough hours left in the day to focus on this podcast the way we were able to during the height of the pandemic. And the fact is that Justin and I both feel like we were getting to a place where we were really proud of the product we were able to deliver every week for you guys. So the last thing we would want to do is half-ass it at this point and not put in the necessary research and not put the time in and give you a subpar product instead. So, that sort of is the, the the first issue. It's simply a matter of time and figuring out how to make more of it, which we are exploring. OK, the second issue is this. Justin and I, throughout the course of our 20 year friendship, have often found ourselves on sort of a uh, a cosmically similar path if you will. And uh, and even if we're doing completely different things in our professional or personal lives, it always seems like we're somehow in sync when it comes to our overall life path. So the very big news to share with you all is that both Justin and I are moving out of L.A. Now, I'll let Justin tell you his story, but here's mine. Uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'd know that... Uh, We've talked about how deeply flawed the lifestyle here in Los Angeles has become. Uh, These flaws become more pronounced once you have kids, of course. My family has uh, sort of had this pie-in-the-sky vision of somehow getting out of the city and having a simpler, less expensive, more kid-friendly life somewhere. But the fact of the matter is that my wife owned a very successful fitness studio here in L.A., and the prospect of giving something like that up to embrace the unknown was always sort of a pipe dream, just something we talked about in passing. But as some of you will remember, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, the pandemic gutted the fitness industry here in L.A. My wife's business ended up closing last year. Uh, While this was very sad, it presented us with perhaps the first real opportunity to make the change that we've been sort of dreaming about all these years. Uh, My job personally is very movable. I travel very well. And the big news is that my wife just purchased two very successful fitness studios in Denver, Colorado that have oh, built in clientele. Yes. And we should put that in the yay capitalism category as well. Absolutely. Right. Uh, but the studios have built in clientele and instructors ready. Uh, and we will be moving to Denver permanently at the end of May, so about a month from now. So the life lesson here, of course, is that there is always a silver lining, right? And uh, that's a really good thing. Now, Justin, why don't you detail some of your exciting life changes that have happened over the last couple months, and then we'll circle back and tell you guys how all this is going to impact the podcast and any future political ventures that we partake in. So Justin, tell us what's going on with you. Uh, I will, but
2: you have to answer one question for me. Mm -hmm. Did you buy your skis yet? Uh
1: no because if you remember I have a completely torn ACL in my oh, left yeah. leg that right. that I got skiing about 10 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um so one of my first priorities is to have surgery on that. I always avoided it because you don't need You're an ACL here. but yeah. you can't go skiing <laughs> without one. Yeah. And there's no skiing here, right? Um so uh yeah and and when it happened it, it was just not the right time for me and I waited probably too long. The recovery time on that surgery is a couple months. But I am, uh, that is on the priority list because I do want right. to start skiing again.
2: Good, I know you're, you're an expert skier. So I hate yeah. to see that uh, you know, go to waste being right by the mountains and all. Thank you, yes. It's going to be exciting oh, lifestyle. No. So tell us about you. So Rob is going to the blue state of Colorado and I am going to what is almost certainly going to go back to being the red state of Arizona with low taxes. Uh, I've got a great new remote tech job that I'm loving. And my wife and I bought a house with more room and less homeless people than Los Angeles. So thankfully for technology, you and I can continue to hang and do this podcast. We'll get to that in a minute. And we, I, what, something I'm really interested in doing is reporting on the differences in living in these states and how the mm-hmm. local governance differs. We talk a lot about the governance in yep. LA and the different regulations and rules, and we'll see how that compares in Arizona versus Colorado. It's going to be an interesting study. Yeah. So uh, the microphone will be packed up tomorrow, which is part mm-hmm. of the reason we're doing this show for you now, besides yep. the fact that it was just time to do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's it's going to be a new a new experience and adventure. Living with no ocean in 120 degree weather. Yeah, wait till summer, uh, dude. Yeah, yeah, we already found a scorpion outside my home. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, you're we'll from you're from Florida, South
1: Florida originally, which has all yeah. sorts of crazy animals. So this is the um, Florida yeah. of
2: this is the Florida of the West. It's the Florida it of the really West is. for sure, yeah, for sure. It's just as many right. golf
1: courses. I mean, just how crazy is it that we're both moving at the same time? And I know. you know, it's funny because the after the pandemic took my wife's business, which was one of the two reasons that I always said I would stay here. Which was the other reason yeah. being that I have friends here. Um, my last really good friend, Justin, here. Is leaving as well. So it sort of is just, again, it, it's cosmically aligned. Now, I officially have like no gr- good, all the guys we moved out here with around what, 15, 16, oh, actually more like like 18 years yeah, ago at this yeah, point. Almost 20. We are almost mm-hmm. all of us are gone at this point. Yeah. That um, is unbelievable. So the pandemic was go. the
2: last push. It was the the
1: pendulum swings, as they say. Yeah, quite. So here's the thing. I am back to working almost full time. Justin has a new job, a very busy, exciting job. And we're both navigating very big and complicated moves across state lines. Obviously, it's going to take us some time to get into the flow again. So we're not going to sit here and tell you that we're going to be back. On track, uh, like you know, like it's regular. After this episode, uh, I think it's going to take some time. So please bear with us. We really wanted to put together this episode, which is going to be probably our longest episode yet. So you have plenty of time yeah. to listen it's to pretty, it. We wanted, epic. To, yes, we wanted to do that for you guys, and so that's what we're doing now. Justin, anything else to add?
2: Nope. Excited for this episode. It's going to be yep. ten hours. So buckle up. Okay. So one question: How do you feel emotionally about leaving LA? I feel very mixed. Uh I know the reasons cognitively yeah. and practically for leaving right. LA. Yeah. But I'm going somewhere where there is no ocean and I've never yeah. not lived by a body of water. Right. Um I do have some friends that are still here. Yeah. And um and it's going to be an adjustment and I'm a Virgo uh, right. for whoever cares about those things I care yeah. about it minimally but it, it means that you know we 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 are tentatively put our toes in the water and so for yeah. me it's a mixed bag, but I am very excited to have space and a house, mm-hmm. be close to family, and, uh, and experience life in Arizona. I got some cowboy hats. You know, I'm I'm going all go. in. I might there buy a go. truck. All in,
1: right? Yeah, I guess I could do the cowboy hat thing too. I mean, it is yes. Denver is a blue. Uh, Colorado is a blue state, but they do wear cowboy hats. Uh, you they know, certainly do. Um, yeah. I feel you know it's it's interesting. My wife is, uh, as you know. Um, she, you know, you've known her as long as I have, she is a very business minded kind of person. She's get down to business, you know, so task, task oriented, practical. She's not a dreamer, you know? So she, you give her something to do. She gets it done probably better than anyone I've ever met. Um, and she doesn't look back. She just is one of these people that, that can sort of move on. I am the exact opposite. I am extremely sentimental. I am not good with change. And this city for all of its flaws it, uh, cities to me that i live in sort of take on a persona there's a personification yeah. element and i have a relationship with the city I, I i mean it really is like a full-on relationship it's a love hate thing there's certain mm-hmm. things i hate about it but at the end of the day i love it it's like it's like a body it's like a, a, you know it's basically like cutting off my arm like la yeah. we've i've lived here now for for my entire adult life it's all yeah. i know
2: yeah and, it's the longest place i've right. ever lived in my life
1: right and and i mean because let's face it we weren't adults in boston and you certainly no. We're an adult in Florida. So uh, we've lived our entire adult lives here. And, you know, it, it is a very strange sort of feeling because I drive around and I think this is my home for, for better or worse. And a lot of times uh, lately it's been worse, but, but it's still my home and it's really hard for me to think about that. But the excitement of knowing what's coming and, you know, I've sort of come to terms with the fact that my life at this period is not about me or my Comfortability. Mm -hmm. It's about my kids. That's, that's, you give up your life. This is part of the life cycle. Mm -hmm. You give up your life for your kids during this period. And then when they go off to college, maybe you get some of it back. So, you know, 10 years from now, maybe I'll say, you know what? Let's live in Manhattan for a few years, you know, whatever. Like we could, we could do whatever. But it's uh, a, it is a good feeling to sort of, you feel selfless doing it. And I feel like I'm giving, I'm, I'm sacrificing the things I love about
2: this city, including the beach, like you mentioned for the yep. betterment of my family and yep. that feels good uh all i want to know is one thing uh, if you're going to be able to get your son out into the winter snow without yeah. shorts on
1: <laughs> right yeah uh anyone who knows my son he is a beach bum he's a california kid he wears shorts year round and t-shirt whenever we make him wear pants he throws a fit about it he hates it obviously in denver in the winter um it is a four season (laughs) city yes he's gonna have to deal with that but you know kids are resilient aren't they All right, guys. So that catches you up on all the personal stuff. But we're here today to catch you up on the political happenings as well. This isn't Let's just go. a kumbaya session. That's right? right. So so we put together a list of all the big things, a lot of them pertaining to the first hundred days of the Biden administration, which just passed. And we're going to break them all down for you as best we can and give you our opinions in the following segment. And since all of this stuff is, you know, indeed newsworthy, we're going to bring you into an extra long version. Version of one of the premier podcast segments in America today. This is Turn on the News. All right, Justin, before we start knocking it out, going line item by line item, let's first give both of our overall grades for the first 100 days of the Biden administration. I'll go first, if you don't mind. Please. Okay. so granted, it's only 100 days into the administration, but I'm man enough to admit when I'm wrong about something. And I think. We have enough evidence now to conclude that I was wrong when I predicted (laughs) that the Biden administration was going to be mostly rhetorical and have a very light legislative footprint, which I said over and over again. Mm -hmm. To the contrary, the Biden administration is shaping up to perhaps be the most transformative and progressive administration since FDR. Uh, I think what happened here is that the Democrats are very concerned about repeating the mistakes they made during Barack Obama's terms, especially his first term, where they felt they could take a bipartisan approach to governing only to be labeled radicals and socialists anyway, and simultaneously pissing off the progressive segment of their base, uh, many of whom either sat out the 2016 election completely or even ended up voting for Trump in an effort to sort of punish the Democrats. If you- if you remember, uh, Hillary Clinton in the eyes of uh, a lot of the far left was, was worse or at least just as bad as Trump. Yeah. The truth is that, uh, looking at the poll numbers and we'll get to that a little later. I have a whole breakdown about that. And looking at Trump's continued stranglehold on the GOP, I think the Democrats are making the calculated decision that. There's a segment of the country that is simply too far gone. And so, therefore, we need to focus on the voters that we already have and securing the voters that we should have, primarily those on the far left, the the Bernie bro people. Uh, From from an electoral standpoint, this might be a great strategy. Now, from a standpoint Mm -hmm. of healing the divide of the nation, or as Justin has said, getting us off the seesaw, perhaps not so good of a strategy. With that said, however, I am a progressive. I am not a socialist or a democratic socialist. I believe in many of the same things that Justin here believes in, the power of capitalism, uh, the importance of a strong military, law and order, freedom of speech, etc. But I have had the desire for a long time to see this country go in a more progressive direction when it comes to the role of government, and especially what I'd consider 21st century economic solutions that countries around the world are utilizing, like paid family leave and government funded childcare, and even to a certain extent really progressive policy measures like some form of universal basic income like Andrew Yang supported in his presidential campaign. You can't I I believe you can indeed be a capitalist and support those things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew Yang did it well. He he called himself a proud capitalist. Additionally I want to see progressive reform of policing, for instance. Mm -hmm. I want to see progressive reform to tackle the climate crisis. I want to see progressive immigration reform. I am a progressive, a moderate one, but still a progressive. So I'm going to give Joe Biden and his administration a B, taking some points off for poor messaging on a few topics that we'll get to later. And I want to say uh, one more thing before Justin gives his grade and we go into detail on some of the big political news of the last two months. uh, The right wing media has pushed hard from the beginning of Biden's campaign to paint him as a sort of senile, doddering, not so quite not so there, like a lifelong government employee, uh, Mm -hmm. which has, of course, uh, enabled them to propel the narrative that uh, the more outwardly progressive person Kamala Harris is really the one in charge and that Biden is sort of taking orders from her. What I will say is that Biden looks old for sure. Um, his energy is subdued and oftentimes sleepy uh, he has definitely lost a step or two in his public uh, literally sp- yes yeah <laughs> it is in his public speaking ability for sure and I think I think it's hard to make the case that he'll run again in 2024 given no, his age no way and, yeah and, and the fact that I, I think it's apparent to, to most people that he's not the Joe Biden of 1995 or whatever no. but with that said I can honestly tell you and I'm not I'm not sugarcoating this I'm not just being a partisan hack that from my perspective he is he is everything I wanted personality wise out of the president at this very moment in history he has a unique i think he has a unique ability to show empathy uh for as hard as the right-wing press has pushed to make him seem completely useless and senile whenever he gets up to the mic i find him to be honestly generally concise and heartfelt and able to display a sufficient understanding of the topics at hand certainly way more than the last guy and that's very important to me uh and that's really all i wanted you know i i didn't need a barack obama i knew from Mm -hmm. the beginning he was no obama i wanted a guy who i believe actually cares about the american people and not just himself and who could bring back some sense of normalcy rhetorically to the president so anyway
2: overall a b for me justin where do you stand robert Mm -hmm. you promised me four years of moderation and slow change (laughs) the heck happened yeah yeah so look this guy's he's getting some stuff done but in this conservative's opinion they're pretty much all the wrong things so i thought like you and hoped maybe unlike you that the first 100 days was going to be generally and mostly covid related right boy was i wrong of course we've had staircase and that horrific press conference but those (laughs) things aside i think a key point that i'm taking away from the promises made during the election versus what actually happened as you alluded to Mm -hmm. is biden's promise to work with republicans He had some chances in the beginning with Romney and Romney's crew. He took the meeting, nothing happened, and he hasn't really looked back once. Mm -hmm. Hasn't been in his rhetoric, hasn't been in his actions. There are Republicans willing to work together, and Biden hasn't reached across the aisle much. That's disappointing to me. So I think his approval rating is reflective of that. It's hovering around 53, to give you some idea of what's typical. Every president between Carter and Trump had an approval rating of 50% or higher around this Mm -hmm. time. He hasn't signed many laws, only seven in the first 100 days, which is on the low end even though they've been big laws, but of course the executive orders have been flowing like the wine in Italy. Um, It's been interesting to see how he's governed generally. It's a bit of a combination of ideals from the 90s Dems like we see with immigration and more recent ideals like bringing the troops home, some of the more progressive governance the administration's toying around with. For progressives and even liberals, I would think the jury's still out on Biden. He's passed one massive bill filled with provisions that are mostly temporary, thankfully for me, and hasn't done much else yet in terms of law signing. Mm-hmm. although we'll see how the rest of his presidency goes so right. i think people need to calm down with the fdr references yeah but that's the practical side right um i think emotionally he's done a lot more in the public's eyes he's virtue signaled mm-hmm. like the best of them right. so if that's what you're after this is your guy right. he's messaged like a like a far left member of his party mm-hmm. uh personally i'm hoping that the movement at the least slows down here i'm yep. not looking for him to upend systems of governance we have enough problems with them as they are he has to work with the people across the aisle that are willing and, and, and willing to pass moderate legislation that tests some things out, but doesn't create any fast sweeping changes. So final answer, while his foreign policy has been terrible and lacking strategy, which is his main job, I think he's dealt with COVID well. Uh, while the last administration saw the development of the vaccines, the distribution of them was going to be horrific. Right. Biden has done a great job with vaccine yep. distribution, but everything else other than the COVID cleanup I can do without, especially the empty rhetoric and virtue signaling. I've said this from the beginning. If COVID cleanup is his only legacy, he Mm -hmm. should be well happy with it. Therefore, I give him a D. Okay. All right. A D. Wow. Um, Yeah. And we're going to detail
1: everything you just said in the following uh, few hours or whatever it's going (laughs) to be. I think, uh, by the way, I think the FDR reference is really coming from Bernie and AOC who have been both on tape saying how he's the most progressive president and they're i mean they are extremely extraordinarily happy with his performance which i think tells you something i mean we have sure. to uh, i think even just putting commissions together to explore these things that someone mm-hmm. like obama wasn't willing or hillary he's certainly was throwing wasn't so willing many to. bones right yeah right i think that's that's a lot okay mm-hmm. so before we break everything down i want justin mentioned it briefly but i want to talk quickly about uh Biden's approval rating, because I think it's indicative of where the country is. So mm-hmm. like Justin said, I, Biles, the, the, the poll I saw is Biden's approval rating is, is sitting at about 54 percent. Now, yeah. this is not, like Justin said, historically strong uh, approval rating by any means. Every single president since World War Two. Uh, has had a higher approval rating at this point, except for Donald Trump and Gerald Ford, who never got above 50%. Uh, We have to also take into account that Ford pardoned Nixon, which dipped his approval rating significantly. A lot of people were Mm -hmm. very against that. So, uh, what makes Biden unique, however, is that his approval rating is almost exactly the same as it was when he was elected, giving him the single most consistent approval rating since they started tracking these things. Uh, That's according to Harry They'll at tip, CNM. Right? right. Right. Yeah. Um, so what this basically means, let's break this down. What this means, what this means is that everyone who voted for Biden approves of Biden, everyone who didn't vote for him doesn't. So right. the the good news is that he hasn't done anything to piss off the base. The bad news is that he's not picked up anyone else. He's not growing his base. And this is surprising on the surface at least because all of the economic metrics right now are stellar and you know they say people vote with their with their pocketbooks, right? Here's here's the fact for you. Biden's 100-day stock market performance is the hottest ever since the 1950s, okay? Mm-hmm. So now, sidebar for a second, because I thought this was interesting. Don't you think it's odd that Biden hasn't even mentioned the fact that the stock market has gone gangbusters? Like Trump talked about the stock market every single day, if not every single second. Yeah, Biden that's, what he, that's what he had. Right. Biden hasn't even mentioned it like not yeah. once. But here's my theory on why I have a, I have I have an actual theory and I I was wondering if you'd agree with me. The okay. stock market doing well isn't bad for Democrats per se, mm-hmm. but it's also something that they want to be careful about highlighting because there's that ultra progressive part of the base that doesn't like the market and sees it as a tool to make rich people richer yeah, and reminds like money. them. Right, it reminds them of income inequality, so they'll they'll see the stock market doing well, and they'll be like, "I thought he was going to change things for us, right?" So this administration is probably quietly celebrating Mm -hmm. uh, the market surge, you know, behind closed doors. But unlike Republicans, they don't want to make a big thing about it to you know to sort of protect the money is evil crowd. You know, that's that's just my theory.
2: Yeah, Yeah. no, I I think there's some there's there's something to that for sure. I also think that we haven't seen. Uh, a further correction, if there's going to be one from the result of the mm. the the coronavirus, I think obviously we saw the shock yeah. and the market drop mm-hmm. immediately yeah. um, but I think that there's a second correction that could be coming due to uh you know some of the the uh regulations that were put in place around rent and mortgage forgiveness mm-hmm. um and some of the loan issues and right. those repayments happening so there's a lot going on right now because yeah. of all of the outreach from covid We haven't seen any effect on the market yet because of it it may never come but it might and i think to their uh to their benefit they are keeping it quiet because what if something happens then they'll be responsible for it
1: maybe maybe um yeah like i said i don't have any evidence on my theory um you know it's also i think republicans w- w- when a democrat is president and the the market is doing good republicans always say it's external factors yeah <laughs> You know, they never want to give credit to the to to the the Democratic president. Uh, Anyway, uh, getting back to to Biden's approval numbers. Here's the interesting part. Okay, many of his individual policies are getting majority support. So, for instance, his handling of covid of the covid vaccine distribution, 72 percent of Americans support this removing troops from Afghanistan. 77% 77% support this, okay? COVID economic relief bill, 66% of Americans say it's helpful to the economy uh, versus only 34% who say it isn't helpful yeah, at 66% all.
2: 66% of Americans say, please give us another check. Right,
1: right, but here you go. I mean, the, the, but that's the thing. The question is, why isn't Biden picking up more support from people who didn't vote for him? Sure. Well, you know— For one, uh, we simply live in an extraordinarily uh, partisan time. So we are divided ideologically, you know, even on issues where the majority of us agree. We, you know, we simply won't give credit to the other side. For instance, 100 days into the Biden administration, Republicans are happy about the stock market. But 92 percent, this is crazy, 92 percent of Republicans credit Trump for the market, not Biden a 100 days in. Right. That's according to CNN poll. OK, if you remember two years into Trump's presidency, the majority of Democrats were still giving Obama credit for the for the economy. Sure. So people are just locked in. Simple that's, as that. That's, that's how yeah. that goes. That's how it goes. But but there's one other big reason. And this is a big reason that that, that I haven't heard anyone talking about. Mm-hmm. The majority of Republicans still believe the election was stolen. Uh, that's sitting currently, according to an Ipsos poll that came out a few weeks ago, at 63% mm-hmm. of Republicans think the election was stolen. So if you think the election was stolen and that Biden is an illegitimate president, there's no way you're you know ever going to approve of his performance, even if he's doing things you may like. Yeah. So anyway, uh, interesting stuff. That's about it. Okay. So let's break down. Let's break everything down a little bit. Uh, First subject is is Bidenomics. And Mm -hmm. if you've been paying attention, you're probably hearing a lot about the
2: infrastructure bill. Justin, uh, why don't you give us an idea of what's in the bill? Sure. So President Biden recently unveiled what he's calling his rebuild agenda in the form of a two trillion dollar plus infrastructure bill rivaling the greatest expenditure of federal funds on infrastructure in U.S. history. The greatest being between 1942 and 1947. While most infrastructure bills focus on transportation costs like roads and bridges, and make no mistake this one does as well with 550 billion for transportation, 100 billion for universal broadband, 111 billion for water infrastructure, and 100 billion for workforce development. This bill also stretches the traditional definition of the word, adding entitlement programs like 400 billion for elderly care and expanded Medicaid, mm-hmm. a new 200 billion public housing program, and hundreds of billions that focus on climate change agenda items lifted from the Green New Deal. The piece de resistance is how the administration Mm -hmm. is proposing it funds this massive plan, a nice big corporate tax hike. Mm -hmm. Now, this bill, and by the way, this administration, in general, runs with the idea that government can do some things good and can do good things. I do not believe this to be true, and that's Mm -hmm. my inherent problem with this bill. That, and obviously, he's using corporate and wealthy individual monies to pay for it, which Mm -hmm. will be interesting to see how Congress people from cities like New York, L.A., And San Francisco do with this more Mm -hmm. to my point why is government sticking its hands into the electric vehicle in infrastructure effort for example we have plenty of private enterprise to handle that far better and more efficiently you can check out uh, one leader of the industry on SNL next week Uh, additionally (laughs) we have yet to determine that healthcare is an infrastructure issue that definition needs to be decided on before it's acted upon the GOP did put together a counter offer which of course is being completely ignored instead of at the least trying to work to find middle ground. Dems jumped on the counteroffer even before the details were released, which is decently silly in my opinion. Uh, Senator Chris Coons of Delaware is pretty much the only one taking it seriously, having said, quote, it strikes me as a serious attempt at providing a counteroffer that meets the general framework that I was hoping for. There are serious efforts to raising taxes on large corporations and wealthy individuals who run and own these companies. Mm -hmm. They may not be felt immediately, but they exist. And by Mm -hmm. the way, there were infrastructure measures also in the COVID relief stimulus bill, which some of this proposal double dips on. Hmm.
1: we're gonna have a lot of fun in this episode because i have so much to break down and say and oh, we're yeah. gonna come back to so much so much of this but uh first of all that you could you could write for the washington examiner that was like right out. Of, that, yeah. that was right out of so like the federalist or something that was great <laughs> uh, so first according to the hill um you know uh, sort of a middle of yep. yep, uh, like the road publication. A broad majority of of Americans support the two trillion um, infrastructure package deal. Sure, they with, hate with, the
2: bumps on the on the on the on the interstate.
1: Right. Well, they support you know physical needs including road, bridge, and tunnel upkeep, as well as broadband internet expansion mm-hmm. and electric vehicle investments. Uh, the broad majority do support that, right? Okay, so this is according to to a Monmouth University poll uh, survey that was released on Monday, just just a couple days ago, or just yesterday, yeah. rather. Uh, only twenty nine percent of Americans oppose the plan. Uh, more interestingly, though, sixty four percent. Uh, supports what the poll describes as a large spending plan to expand access to health care and child care, like you mentioned, and provide paid leave and college tuition support, which the president is expected to unveil this week. 64 percent. OK, the poll also registered widespread support for Biden's plan to fund the infrastructure package through hikes, like you mentioned, to the corporate tax rate and wealthy individuals, despite opposition from Republicans and some conservative Democrats to that idea. Here's the bottom line infrastructure has been a very politically driven priority for both parties for many years. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you were a Trump fan, which I know you're not, Justin, you heard him say over and over, "Yeah, our roads and our bridges are falling apart, and we're the laughing stock of the world." You know, he, he he would always say that. Your roads yeah. are falling apart, your bridges are falling. Okay, so it doesn't surprise
2: me that the majority of Americans support that part well, of he, infrastructure he, he, spending. He unveiled a plan, by the way that was that was more money than I mean, not a big shock, but more money right. than the plan that the GOP oh, recently yeah. unveiled. Yeah, 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 I know, I know, and I'm going to get to that too. What became
1: of uh, the sort of what became the sort of right wing talking point in regard to this infrastructure plan was what exactly the Democrats are considering infrastructure, infrastructure. to be. That sure. that 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 has been like I listened to all the right wing press; they're considering everything. Your mom is infrastructure, you know, like <laughs> right. everything is in inter- Right? So so now we're arguing over what exactly is infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So here is a clip of Ben Shapiro panning the plan. And uh, pointing out that a whole lot of the bill doesn't go to roads and bridges, but does indeed go to more progressive priority agenda items like Justin was uh, was was elaborating on. I think it's also good to
4: get somebody like Ben to give his take on this. Ben Shapiro, go. Biden's plan here is to blow out the spending. It's to rethink the government's relationship with labor. It's to make everybody basically a union member so that they can be a de facto bargainer with the government. And it's to spend a bunch of crap, uh, just a crap load of money on sillinesses. There's $10 billion to create a civilian climate corp. The White House claims the $10 billion investment will put a new diverse generation to work, conserving our public lands and waters. that sound like infrastructure to you? $20 billion to advance racial equity and environmental justice. $20 billion. That's more than the latest COVID package spent on vaccines, by the way. For a program that will reconnect neighborhoods cut off by historic investments and ensure new projects to increase opportunity, advance racial equity and environmental justice. $175 $175 billion in subsidies for electric vehicles, except for the fact that, you know, people are already buying electric vehicles if they're good and not if they suck. $213 billion to build and retrofit 2 million houses and buildings. $100 billion new dollars for new public schools and making school lunches greener. They're going to get rid of uh, paper plates and other disposable materials in schools. Billions to eliminate racial and gender inequities in science, technology, engineering, and math. All this sounds like infrastructure spending to you, doesn't it? Again, 5% of this bill actually goes to roads and bridges. So I'm guessing, Jay, you agree with a lot of that. Well, I don't yep. think
2: that we need to be serving, you know, uh, paper straws with the plastic cups in right. uh, high schools. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I guess I am a little surprised, frankly, by by
1: how the poll numbers are reflecting broad majority support for even these more progressive measures.
2: And well, why here's is this my surprising well, to you c- well, in, in just government spending in general. Well, uh, free money. Well,
1: see, I guess it's not really sur- surprising because I've been talking about this this entire podcast how yeah. Republicans are losing their sense of Republican of conservatism, right? My 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 suspicion is that people like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and some of the less ideologically or at least classically conservative commentators have Mm -hmm. really influenced a large portion of voters who now call themselves Republicans to abandon the sort of small government, less spending principles. And are now on board with the idea yeah. of, of government taking a more active yeah. role in the issues of the day. You know, yeah. we should remind everyone, as we did just a second ago, that, that Donald Trump spent more money than any president in American history. And he's the most popular Republican president of our lifetime by a long shot, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think less and less Americans are concerned with spending and have yeah. become more concerned with just America winning, you know? And mm-hmm. if that means that, that government takes an active role, In us being on the cutting edge of green energy or uh, even government subsidies that may that make middle class Americans lives better, even at the expense of wealthy Americans. I don't think that's so unpopular anymore among the the Republican base tax hikes on people making over a million dollars a year and corporations has bipartisan support. Yes, yeah, for a while insane. now you, right. you know what
2: it's like it's like uh america has become the right the republicans or the gop's sports team right you know it's like the patriotism is like all right well we we have a sports team and they have to win so <laughs> what, what do they need to win they need more money right. right so let's fund them more let's They they need better uniforms they need right. uh, better equipment and and then that's become you know we need to we need to make government bigger because if they're bigger they'll be better and that's not not the case for someone like me who's a classic, classic conservative who doesn't yeah. want to be governed that way
1: yeah that's why i'm glad you're here because a lot of people who listen to this might only be getting the the tucker carlson version you know tucker's been doing a lot about how uh you know i think there's there's a lot of resentment uh, uh, towards corporate america and, this, and the fact that and we'll talk about this later in the pod the, the fact that corporate america has taken a more liberal stance on these these social issues and these issues of the day has yeah. has has exacerbated that resentment mm-hmm. so a lot of these people are saying you know what tax the sh- out of those ceos i don't i don't give a crap if it's making my life better you know so republicanism has really
2: shifted in that in that regard right it's become emotional and it's become Mm -hmm. like everything else with the advent of the internet in my opinion Mm -hmm. it's become very self politics has become very self-centered and Mm -hmm. and and that's a a major problem it's not about what's best for us as a country Mm -hmm. it's like what do i feel what am i mad at today it's activism on both sides it's the seesaw and it's a problem
1: right now for me all of the climate related spending i'm totally i'm total game uh with personally yeah. i mean that that that's just that's just me because i'm uh, you know i really want again my progressiveness uh, dictates that that's something I care I care about, right? Mm-hmm. Making school lunches uh, or lunchrooms greener is good by me. Investing electric cars, I know you're sort of like, well, the private sector could do that better, but I'm good with, with uh, the government taking an active role because again, if we could be a world leader in that. I was just
2: going to say, I hear all of that. I just mm-hmm. wish it was placed in its proper category. I just like, I, right. it feels to me like they're trying to get away with something by throwing it into an infrastructure bill, mm-hmm. some of these things. And I, I'm not like, I'm not. I'm not trying to like pile on to the the, the Republican talking points here. Right. I really do mean it. No, infrastructure no, has meant something, and that's. I me, always trust you on that. Yeah, it <laughs> means it's meant something in the past, yeah. and that means we know what to expect in this bill. And Joe Biden knows that, and and the, right. the people in Congress know that. And so mm-hmm. I, I firmly believe they're trying to slide things into this bill that don't fit and calling it infrastructure because they're trying to get away with something.
1: Okay, you know, I, I put a lot of these things in the category of infrastructure, and uh, you know, because I think. But that's if you term, believe government should be doing this. Right, right. I do believe government should be know, doing some of point. this, right? right? That's my point. And more importantly, I, I think... They're mostly aimed most of these measures are aimed at making America stronger and more equitable and i i'm I'm not totally by the way i'm not totally in favor of all of the like the racial and gender equity mm-hmm. spending just because i've always thought that that those things were better left to the forces of the market like yeah. the, it's my libertarian side, like the government mm-hmm. forcing businesses for instance to hire more people of color or women historically has backfired on the people it was intended to help sure but but overall, I think. Here's the thing now is the time for this kind of spending package while the economy is going to be booming. We're coming out of this devastating pandemic over the next few years. I I have been very consistent on paying for these things. With corporate tax hikes. And mm-hmm. the main thing for me is that I see this kind of spending as a necessary tool to return America to the world stage. That's how I look at it. To make us more competitive with China, to not be isolationist, to be on the cutting edge of future technologies. I think now is the time. That's that's just how I feel about
2: it. Look, we agree that we need to be competitive with China. We both yeah. agree that we need to to be we need to be center on the world stage and mm-hmm. we need to take an active role, or Russia and China are gonna be a major problem for us in the future. yeah we both definitely agree on that i think what we disagree is on the means. for me it's private enterprise you think the government should be more involved yeah Uh, and i love private enterprise i think there's there's
1: room for both
2: right of course yeah yeah. but now you know one thing
1: so i want to say a thing about the stimulus bill that was uh, that was again widely we'll get off of the infrastructure Mm -hmm. infrastructure for a second uh this was also a popular bill Yes, it was but it was widely panned by by the right wing uh commentator class, but it's very popular, like you just said, among American citizens. Mm-hmm. So there was an article in Politico last week entitled, Not Rich, good news, you're probably getting a tax cut. It went on to say that the Democrat tax cut included in their March stimulus package that passed uh, will drive down tax rates on low and middle income people so much this year that those earning less than seventy five thousand dollars a year on average will owe nothing in federal income taxes. Okay, so that's a whole lot of Trump voters and Mm -hmm. people who like lower taxes, uh, who aren't going to pay any taxes this year. Quote. Everyone knows that Democrats want to raise taxes on the rich, but what hasn't gotten nearly as much notice is how much they've cut them for most everyone else, substantially more than Republicans did in their first year of their 2017 tax overhaul, end quote. This will shift the relative burden to the wealthy, at least temporarily. Uh, with those earning more than five hundred thousand dollars a year expected to pay more than two-thirds of all income taxes this year. That I mean that, that that's a dream if you're so it, hefty. Yeah, hefty. Th- th- this is living the dream, though, if you call yourself a progressive. And if you call yourself a conservative, shouldn't you be happy about the fact that the middle class Americans are going to be paying nearly
2: no taxes this year? To some degree. I, I think that the problem is, is that the burden falls to people that are are working at the top levels of the private sector. And right. to the extent that this limits or halts to some degree the ability to it takes money out of private enterprise and it takes money out of uh, innovation. It takes money out of things that move our country forward. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the reticence, I think, on, on the on the on the right. Right. See, so, you know, if I was going to do the devil's advocate, what would a conservative like my buddy
1: Justin say about th- this, you know, sort of the counter argument? Uh it's, you know, typically the sort of stereotypical line is that you know, raising the corporate tax levels to pay for all this will drive businesses out of the country. Uh raising taxes on the wealthy will just entice them to put more of their money offshore and stop investing mm-hmm. in small businesses. But do not put words in your mouth, Justin. I mean, what what generally what are your thoughts on on, on how uh, we could have a progressive tax system that incentivizes uh, business, but also
2: helps the middle class. I mean, again, I don't. Th- I, to me, it's a larger problem, like taking another step backwards or, or mm-hmm. out and looking at it on a macro level. I mm-hmm. don't think we should be paying for all this stuff. So if right. we're paying for less stuff and government is smaller, you don't need as much money to run your government and you don't need to push the button on so many tax hikes. I think that's the bigger problem rather than looking at like, what can we do to pay for all this stuff? To me, it's more like we shouldn't be paying for all this stuff rather than searching for a different way to pay for it.
1: Right now, you know, on the topic of, of our tax system and, and how it should work. Um, years ago, there was, uh, an essay written by Warren Buffett, who certainly is one of the wealthiest people in the world. I, we can't call him a socialist. I don't think. Um, Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you, going all the way back to the Obama tenure, um, there was the Buffett rule and the Buffett rule came about from Warren Buffett, essentially calling Barack Obama and saying it was ridiculous that his secretary who makes 50 or $60,000 a year was paying more tax, a higher tax rate than he was. And he earns billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, that got into a discussion of what liberals call or democrats call middle-out economics the you know the idea is that when when wealthier people are taxed at a higher rate the entire economy can can see a, 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 a a significant amount of growth from that, because what ends up happening is those tax dollars, like we're talking about here with infrastructure and the stimulus, they cushion the middle class. When the when the when the middle class is cushioned, they have more money to spend. When they spend more money, they're buying more things mm-hmm. at your establishment, right? So you might be taxed at a higher rate, but you're getting it back because more people can afford your product. So there is something to be said. I mean, this is this is a. Much much more nuanced, deeper conversation, but I like the direction this is going. I want to see what happens because we've been threatened by Republicans for years that the businesses are all going to leave the country. You know, businesses are going to stop investing. Rich people are going to stop investing. Warren Buffett has claimed it's actually not the case. When wealthy people, you know, get taxed at a higher rate, they actually invest more because they're trying to make up for the, all the money the government is taking. Right? Sure. I mean, so, we'll, we'll see.
2: It'll be interesting. Yeah. Uh, we know a lot of businesses are switching states because of right. tax issues. Yeah, that, that so is we'll true. See. For sure, we'll see if it
1: drives them out of the country. It we'll see. Be an we- interesting study we will bounce back to this at a later, a later point. So uh, yeah. that pretty much ends the Bidenomics conversation. So moving on, let's talk a little bit about COVID uh, at the end of the day. And I said this several episodes before the election of 2020 and then afterwards as well. And mm-hmm. Justin touched on it as well. The most important thing to me from this administration, at least in the first couple of years was to end this godforsaken forsaken pandemic. Yeah. Uh, now, some of the messaging has been off and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but as far as vaccine rollout, the biden administration has exceeded expectations i mean far exceeded it right like you know like i said at the top of the show uh i'm seeing and feeling things getting back to normal in real time here and to me even if you want to credit trump with the operation warp speed and the development of the vaccine which is a a serious stretch for me as, as as i've pointed out in other episodes uh the only way in my estimation to get a handle on this pandemic was to first have an administration that took it seriously and, you know, took it with the utmost seriousness and didn't downplay it for political gain or to attempt to, you know, own the libs with it. You know, the Biden administration is doing this and I, I think it's working. And that's just, fine by me you know this is one of the only things i wanted from this administration so justin what are your thoughts on that
2: yeah i think that this has been done extremely well we're getting what exactly what you wanted from this administration i Mm -hmm. agree government has tapped private business in the right way i know you got your vaccine at cvs you told me about it i got my vaccine at cvs by the way do you you have any side effects uh i got a little fluey
1: for uh, about, after uh, the
2: second one, for a couple hours after the second one, but it was right. nothing. It was not right. I took two Tylenol, and I was fine in the morning. Right. Yeah, so, I, so, I, I had nothing. Just nothing. Yeah. 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 So there you go. I, uh, don't the, be scared the, of it. That's it. this is our public
1: service announcement. We're, we're we're breaking for a public service announcement. <laughs> don't be scared to get your damn vaccine. The va- you might have heard about all these side effects, but they don't happen to everyone. I had nothing.
2: My wife was in yeah. bed all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the vaccine yeah. at CVS experience was incredibly easy. Yeah, uh, I think they've moved quickly. They're uh, flush with vaccines right now. There's right. going to be more pumped into the system. The, result, the results of this have been very good. Yeah, yeah. Now, with all that said, I have been less than pleased with the messaging,
1: both federally yeah. and in my current state of California, uh, current state for the next month, uh, yep. in regard uh, to what life could or should be like once we get vaccinated. I mentioned this before. I mentioned this on the last episode two months ago of the show in regard to Anthony Fauci. And I frankly, frankly, I feel stronger about it now. You need to create an incentive to get people to take the vaccine. Taking the vaccine will create the herd immunity and an incentive structure will entice people to get the vaccine. Telling people that even after they're fully vaccinated, they still have to take these very draconian precautions in life Mm -hmm. is the Wrong way to convince people to get the vaccine. I'm sorry. I know a lot of people on the left disagree with me on this, but you know the administration is still painting a doom and gloom scenario when it comes to another wave of COVID. Now, just today, we found out yeah. that you don't need. I mean, I love when news breaks right like when we're doing a podcast. Know, amazing. We, yeah. What did Perfectly we find placed. out exactly?
2: We found out today, per the government, mm-hmm. that we are allowed, mm-hmm. if you've been vaccinated, to forego a mask right. if you're outside. Right. Just that, if you're outside, is that federally?
1: Because uh, in the state of California, I, I have my doubts about that.
2: Yeah, so that I right, mean okay. that's that's a federal mandate. Okay, I, I'm I'm sure the the uh, idea is so that the the governors can take or leave the advice. Right. Uh, we know what Florida and Arizona are doing. Right. Yeah. Um. And we know what California is probably doing. Right. But uh, it's definitely it's it's federally mandated. But we'll see. You know, what governors agree to that on a state level. Right. And uh, and to me, it's as insane as the fact that we're doing this just now. It's outside and it's, you know, no mask and like it's it's too little too late, in my opinion.
1: Okay, yeah. I mean, see, here's the thing. They keep telling people, even with this new this new mandate, they keep telling people that we're not out of the woods yet. Rather than reinforcing the fact that these vaccines are some of the most effective ever created in history and they are your passport, back to regular life. So mm-hmm. the really crazy, I haven't even had a chance to talk to you about this, but a couple of weeks ago, my kids went back to school. Um, and I saw, an, the, I saw the a, Facebook posts. Right. They're, they're, yeah. they're in, a, a, you know, it was essentially a year they were out, out of school. So now they go to yeah. school in the morning and then they're in an after-school program, which was free, which I'm very wow. thankful. That the, the school provided this program for us. Um, so they're there until three o'clock. They're there from eight to three every day. Um, but what these kids have to go through Really is stunning because they, first of all, they have to wear their mask the entire day. They get reprimanded oh. and it's really hard to keep Keeping a six six year old with a mask. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But on top of that, we have to have, we get like a QR code. every They have to be tested for COVID every single week. They- we get a QR code. That comes to our phone. Um, we have we have to actually register every single day. They give a, give us a QR code. It has to be scanned. Their temperature is taken several times during the day. Wow. They have to eat separated, right? And here's the thing: Why are we still on the temperature? It's, by the way, that's not right. a thing. Of course, it's not. But that's that's my whole point here, Justin. Is that a lot of this is not based in any kind of science any, at least nope. that i could find right no it's not let the we what we've known from the beginning is that this virus does not affect kids substantially mm-hmm. the whole point was that they couldn't be in school because they could take it home to grandma so if grandma is now vaccinated or your, or you know yeah. the kids parents are vaccinated what's the problem a teacher's vaccinated. why can't they yeah. let these kids just go back i've been I I've been super emotional about this because yeah. my kids were excited to get back they needed to get back they were becoming mm-hmm. just way too isolated yeah. and we finally send them back to school And it's, 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 it's like being in the military or something. Like there's all these protocols and they can't eat with each other. And they, you know, let the kids freaking be kids at this point. Like I am a, I'm a Jewish worry ward. Okay. (laughs) I'm not worried about my kids getting COVID. I have the vaccine now, so I'm not worried about me getting COVID from them. Right. But let them do it. So I've been very disappointed in, in that part, you know, Uh, I agree. Yeah, the the next thing I want to talk about in regard to COVID and and something that took up at least 2 weeks during our period off, especially if you watch the right-wing press, the pundits were just off the wall with this topic and and and, and this is the idea of the vaccine passport, okay? Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. Right. So now before before I really get into it, I want to once again hand it to uh, our editor-in-chief, Clay Cogman, who called this probably a year ago at this point. Yeah. Now the, the one pervasive conspiracy theory among left-wingers was the anti-vax thing, okay? In fact, according to the CDC red states have a higher percentage of children who are vaccinated than blue states right any er right any area in the country that has rich liberal communities might also have like we have here in los angeles special schools that cost you know 30k per per kid per year Mm -hmm. so that your kid doesn't have to get vaccinations right this was a liberal phenomenon yeah and our buddy clay called it when he said that This was sort of the last remaining conspiracy for the right to adopt and that it would probably happen in the wake of this pandemic. And he was 100 percent correct because they couldn't help themselves. They they just can't help themselves. Any excuse to appeal to the base's sort of natural skepticism of, of elite institutions like the medical field and uh, scientific establishment, it's just too valuable for them to pass up. So the Pew Research Center found a huge partisan divide when it comes to interest in taking the vaccine. So 33% of Republicans, 33%, so like a third, uh, say they won't get the vaccine when it becomes available to them, while Just 10% of Democrats said the same. So congratulations, Republicans. You took the one stupid conspiracy theory that was owned by the left and made it your own. Good job all around. So that brings up the concept of vaccine passports. Now, Mm -hmm. what a vaccine passport would do is enable companies to opt in or out. Uh, and decide for themselves if they want to accept unvaccinated people into their establishment. For instance, if the Staples Center, let's take, for example, they, you know, the our arena here in L.A., decided that for all of their events, sporting or otherwise, every single person in attendance had to show their vaccine passport, that doesn't mean the government is forcing you to get vaccinated. It just means that you can't go to the Staples Center or fly on Delta Airlines or get in yeah. a cer- certain Uber vehicle or whatever, right? So a couple things. One, I personally find this completely uncontroversial. I am am very much a supporter of the passport idea. As usual, this is a right-wing media attempt to take something that is fairly innocuous and blow it up into something earth-shattering that is going to destroy all of your freedoms and turn us into the USSR. Uh, We already have vaccine passports in this country. Kids who go to public school, Mm -hmm. yeah. They have they they all need vaccine passports and have since well before the pandemic. So when I enrolled my kids in school, I had to prove that they've been inoculated. So this concept is really nothing new further. And Jay will like this. Israel is doing vaccine passports for COVID Mm -hmm. to a high degree of success. We've talked about it on the show. Nobody is forcing anybody to get a vaccine against their will. It's simply giving a private business the right to choose who they do business with. I just don't see where the controversy is here. So, you know, the libertarian verse – sort of the libertarian universe has been going nuts over this idea and yeah, sure. and, and like i've said before there are uh, there are several things that i sort of lean libertarian on and align with them on usually on things like crime and drug policy and prostitution and things like that mm-hmm. um but to me this is an example of why libertarianism is ultimately uh ultimately unsustainable and it comes down to the word that we Se- seatbelts comes down to seat belts. <laughs> right <laughs> beyond seatbelts it comes down to that that word that we've used many times now on the show which is externalities so my sort of libertarian litmus test is if the behavior in question does not create externalities for society writ large i'm usually against any kind of government regulation or law against said activity Mm -hmm. right but If you claim libertarianism as the reason why your kid doesn't need to be vaccinated and your kid plays at the same playground as my kid, then you're exposing my kids to potentially negative and dangerous externalities. Mm -hmm. And this is why so much libertarian thought is rooted in bullshit frankly because ultimately unless you're going to live completely off the grid and not play in the system at all right, you have right yeah. you have to take into account the common good so if you want to live in the middle of nowhere where your actions or behaviors or desire to not follow medical advice has zero impact on the rest of society then fine right but if you're going to live in a city like Los Angeles for instance there's a certain amount of things that you have to do for the good of the public, for the good of your neighbors, right? So the bottom line is that not getting a COVID vaccine puts the community writ large at risk. So Mm -hmm. if you don't want to get the vaccine, fine. But if the local supermarket requires one to come in, I'll make the choice to go there where I know you won't be there. And by the way, the market will take care of this, honestly, because if enough people feel strongly enough that they don't they won't go to Ralph's grocery store because they need a vaccine passport to do so then inevitably grocery stores will open that don't need proof of vaccine yeah, to go to so exactly. justin what, what what's your opinion on all of this
2: i have very little ad here i agree with okay. what you said I, okay. I think i think if it's government mandated i'm very against a vaccine passport i think it's very bad but private business we should leave it up to them to determine whether this is something important to them and if there's a grocery store that wants to uh you know have a vaccine passport in order to enter fine that's up to them if there's another grocery store that will inevitably open that doesn't that's fine that's up to them i know like the los angeles football club is doing vax only uh, sections for example these private enterprise they they need to figure out how important this is to them there will be options Uh, there always is uh, across the spectrum and people people are going to fake these anyway so i don't know what the difference is
1: i'm curious about this you said you were against uh the government mandating a or or,
2: or, so so what do you mean by that i I just mean this should be up to every every business right to to determine whether they require a vaccine passport in order to enter their establishment or be at their function whatever that is i don't think government should be dictating to them if they if someone should need a vaccine passport to enter their business
1: Got it. Okay, so, but what would you say if the government said you need a, a vaccine passport to come on government uh, or feder- federally owned property?
2: How would you uh, feel about that? that federally owned property—that's fine. That's the same as it's right. same as private business, right? Okay. Government owned property—they're they're determining for themselves whether that is something that's right or government
1: to, parks or something. You know, you know whatever yeah, yeah. it is.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. As long as long as they're not impressing upon the private community. Right. What needs Got to be done. I'm fine. Okay. So you are, you are, so we're pretty much on the same page with this one. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's, a, that's
1: what down the middle is about. That's right. <laughs> so finally on the subject of COVID, uh, California and thus Gavin Newsom have had a hell of a year. Now, California oh. had yeah. California has been the epicenter of the crisis a few times now and suffered from a healthcare system that was essentially out of resources at times. And, uh, you know, they couldn't handle the pandemic. It was, it got pretty scary here at times. Now yep. governor Newsom has become the liberal face of evil, if you will, in this state for dictating that the state become the number one state in the nation for COVID related restrictions. Now people are so upset at him that he's at the butt of an actual recall right now, uh, with, you know and i think it actually went through today didn't we it got confirmation. Yep. confirmation i believe it was last night
2: yeah. right
1: last night right that the vote's so gonna happen that for all you uh for all you conspiracy theorists out there which we'll get to later uh this flies in the face of the idea that he was doing all of this because he was drunk with power right because it turns out if you piss off enough people and they recall you you no longer have power you idiots Okay. Yeah, pay so, attention. yeah. So that was always a stupid take, by the way. Yeah. Um, but uh, the entire country uh, may just owe Governor Newsom an apology, or at least have to admit that he's redeemed himself a little bit. Because as of today, California's COVID nineteen positivity rate is one point two percent. Not only the lowest in the country, but the lowest the state of California has experienced in a year. Right. Additionally, California has administered 27 million vaccinations, which means it has vaccinated a higher percentage of the population than any other state in the nation and it shows. We see the progress the vaccines are making in real time here as I've said several times. So what do you think,
2: Justin? Did Newsom redeem himself? So, uh, yes, uh, California sped up the vaccination effort. Mm-hmm. And if all continues to go this well, the state will completely reopen June 15th. Yeah. So is this complete reopening possibly? It's a big state. Like a, it's
1: complicated big state. It's a state. big state. Well, it yeah. might
2: be a little soon. Is it? Mm-hmm. Is it being done in the time span allotted in order to help Newsom avoid a political disaster? <laughs> I, I mean, you bet it is. <laughs> right. Do people care? No, they don't care. They just want to reopen. So, look, right. I agree that he's done a better job as of late. Of course, mm-hmm. y- you can't deny that. Right. But uh, I don't think it forgives him of his earlier sins. Uh, these, right. are, these, these offenses are recallable offenses. We should hold people accountable for their wrongs, in my opinion. Right. I'm not saying, like, let's go elect Caitlyn Jenner for governor. But I don't mm-hmm. think we have to wipe the slate completely clean for Newsom because he cleaned it up at the end. I think he got pushed to his limit. He saw that there were going to be consequences, and he did what mm-hmm. he needed to do. His behavior mm-hmm. as, b- prior to mm-hmm. these mistakes has also it, it's been questionable. So I don't think this wholly redeems him. I think these kinds of mistakes have consequences. In for in terms of his mistakes, I I I mean, there's one that was a a
1: blatant mistake, which was the French Laundry when he went to, when he went to dinner. You know the 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 rules for rules for thee and not for me thing,
3: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. which a lot of politicians have done, and whatever politicians sure, are, sure. are mm-hmm. they're they're the same as as people. They were. I, I wouldn't expect a politician to not be as frustrated as I am with these with of these course. measures especially yeah. because that people actually want to hang you know I'm cool with my wife at home when you're a politician and people actually want to hang out with you you have a lot, sure. you have a you have a lot of places to be right yeah. the other the other mistake or is not even necessarily a mistake that we can prove as as we've talked about before you know the closing of businesses the closing of
2: of restaurants outdoors we
1: just don't know
2: yet so I'm I, I, not hear, I hear i hear all say that yeah. my 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 issue is more with some of the science that wasn't followed the outdoor mm-hmm. dining which you know LA right. Uh, you know the mayor of la has some responsibility in as well but there are some things that were done uh Mm. towards the end of 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 the pandemic that (laughs) i i think that he didn't do right and he did for political gain and he did because he you know he kept wineries open he owns a bunch of wineries yeah little things like this that that didn't get a lot of press that i i think uh, our, our issues. Our yeah, problems. okay. I'll buy that for a dollar. It should It should also be noted
1: that Caitlyn Jenner has announced that she's running to replace Newsom and she's running as a socially liberal Republican. So you just can't make this <laughs> up, folks. When when you look at it in a national spotlight, you can't make it up. But when you've lived in this crazy state for as long as Justin and I have, oh, yeah. our reaction is like, yeah, that tracks. Yeah, it no, really does. No, nothing surprising, no. right? No. Probably got <laughs> elected too right yeah, exactly it's like none of that would surprise me like again people looking at it nationally are sort of like this is crazy like why yeah. would they do that we're like eh, this is california this is what happened? Yeah, just tuesday there, right? Right, exactly. So, moving right along here, another issue uh, that we must discuss is immigration. Okay, mm-hmm. we'll get get off COVID because we're all tired of talking about COVID. Yeah, we are. So, uh, before we get into how the Biden administra- administration has handled the situation, Justin, what are the facts on the ground right now as it pertains to
2: our border? So, here's what we got. Now, while Biden's approval numbers are high in relationship to COVID, especially, this is an area where there's not a great amount of support as of late. So just last month, 172,331 migrants were taken into custody by U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the highest total in 20 years. The Republicans, of course, are blaming Biden for mismanagement, and the current administration is blaming the administration before it. Preliminary statistics from this month show that the high border crossing numbers are leveling off, with Customs and Border Protection taking in 17,000 teens and children slightly down from March and roughly 50,000 migrants traveling as part of a family group. More than 21,000 teens and children currently sit in HHS shelters, plus another 1,700 in border patrol stations and facilities. This has overwhelmed the system rapidly, leaving an overflow of children without supervision. Earlier this month, Biden opted to not admit more refugees, triggering a backlash among Democrats that forced him to quickly reverse course. It was the first time the president used the word crisis. The problem was that, uh, and this is the quote, the problem was that the refugee part was working on the crisis that ended up on the border. With young people, and we couldn't do two things at once. So look, regardless of his numbers, or regardless of these numbers, I think it's safe to say that Biden botched this. The numbers remain the numbers, right? According to some statistics published by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, authorities encountered 9,457 children without a parent in February, which is a 61% increase from January, which is not the 28% that Biden is quoted as saying. So yes, there are seasonal trends. This is a thing that happens, and we're seeing that mostly in the families that come On the whole, that's a piece of this. But the issue at hand that we're talking about is children and teens, and that rise is not seasonal. That's due to rhetoric as documented by AP. What I am happy about is that this past Wednesday, the White House at least uh, motioned towards working with Republicans on a bipartisan bill regarding immigration. Mm -hmm. I have to imagine it could be a political tactic to try and take some, some of the heat off the administration. This thing is kicking their butts far more than anything else. Right. Okay. Here, here's the thing.
1: Uh, and I'm not an immigration expert, but I know what I know. Right. Sure. And I, I, I don't like this. And I'll first say that I don't like this any more than any Republican voters do. No. I wish it wasn't a problem. I don't yeah. like to see kids crossing the border alone. I don't want to see our immigration system overwhelmed. I want this problem to be brought under control. Like I would think any rational citizen would. Right. Yeah. But, but the only idea that I've heard the right offer um consistently is that the problem has been exacerbated by joe biden because he didn't like talk tough about immigration right you even said it the rhetorical element right in, in well, other words trump used more incendiary rhetoric and therefore mm-hmm. less people uh you know thought they were invited to the united states so so are we seeing a surge of migrants because they have a feeling that that the uh, The Biden Administration will be more friendly towards them, perhaps but mm-hmm. the the idea that the antidote to that is to have an overweight man stand up at a podium and talk about building a wall that he mostly failed to build and then proclaim that we need to take care of the problem very strongly because Mexico is sending crime, drugs and rapists and that somehow that is all we need to stop the influx of migrants because they'll be so scared off by the rhetoric. I mean, that is so dumb. I I don't even know where to start, right? So, point me to one policy that Biden has enacted. Policy, not rhetoric, mm-hmm. that has resulted in a surge of migrants at the border. I mean, I couldn't personally find any. I mean, m- my thing is, we cannot solve this crisis with rhetoric. The right-wing press has been laying on thick because he, you know, like you said, he wouldn't say the word crisis until very recently, mm-hmm. which is exactly what they did with Obama, not using the phrase radical Islamic sure, terrorism. So. As if just using a certain terminology would make the problem disappear. We cannot solve this crisis with rhetoric. We cannot solve this crisis with a wall. There -hmm. was an article that I read yesterday in Texas Monthly entitled a section of Trump border wall in South Texas costs $27 million a mile. It's being foiled. By $5 ladders, okay? In it, one uh, one McAllen Border Patrol agent says, quote, ladders and walls go together like peas and carrots. And <laughs> this is what I've, right, this is what I've always contended uh, about a wall. It's a stupid waste of money that doesn't solve the problem, but rather only appeals to a certain man's ego. So what is the solution? Well, For whatever you may think about Kamala Harris, I basically agree with what she said in an interview she did with CNN just the other day. We have a clip for you. Let's listen to that first and then come back a little and discuss.
0: You know, I come at this issue from the perspective that most people don't want to leave home. They don't want to leave their grandparents. They don't want to leave the place where they grew up, where the, you know, they speak the language, where they know the culture. Um, the place where they're the place that is home. Most people don't want to leave home, and when they do, it's usually for one of two reasons: they're fleeing some harm, or they cannot stay and satisfy the basic necessities of life, such as feeding their children and having a roof over their head. That's the, that, that is part of a big part of what is going on. So I look at the issue of what's going on in the Northern Triangle from that perspective. And then my take on it is that we've got to understanding that we have to give people some sense of hope, that if they stay, that help is on the way. that brings me to then my focus. Increase our focus and our resources around helping the farmers in that region who have been devastated by crisis in terms of climate and, and drought. Mm-hmm. USAID, ID, we're increasing our disaster response because, again, of the hurricanes. And then we have to also look at the piece about community-based organizations. So, for example... This week, in addition or next week, in addition to meeting again with the president of Guatemala, I will be meeting the following day with the community based organizations in Guatemala. They call them basically civil society to figure out how we can better assist what they're doing on the ground Mm -hmm. in a way, again, that they can give the resources to people who naturally want to stay at home and give them some sense of hope that help is on the way. This is the work that we're doing, but it's not going to be solved overnight. It's a complex issue, but it will be worth it.
1: So uh, the immigration issue is very complex. We have a southern border. Uh, a physical bar- barrier is not going to make any meaningful headway. Tough guy rhetoric is not going to do a thing. The be- From my perspective, the best thing we can do is to invest in these countries and make quality of life for them, like Kamala Harris was talking about. Uh, make a better quality of life for them so that they don't want to leave. That in and of itself is a very complex proposition because at some level, I would presume it involves intervention into very substantial government corruption that goes on in these countries, deposing Mm -hmm. dictators and so on and so forth. This is not like a weekend project. This is like, you know, this is years and years and years in the making. And so therefore I I think Harris is right. It's going to take a long time. This is a long-term project, but we have to attack the problem at the foundation of, the problem, which is that the people fleeing these countries are fleeing because of economic desperation and unthinkable violence, right? So solve those two problems, solve our immigration crisis. But it certainly won't be solved by demonizing South American migrants. I think that might actually make the problem worse. At the same time, the far left, okay, to be balanced here, the far left has to come to terms with the fact that we are indeed a sovereign nation, and there's nothing wrong with that. There is Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. We cannot just let people in without vetting them. We cannot Not just let people in who have no sense of American values and culture. That is not racist to say that these are Mm -hmm. important things, right? We are a nation of immigrants and a melting pot, but it has to be on our terms and what's best for our citizens. There there, there was a uh, an interview I saw with John Kelly. This was probably a couple years ago at this point, who was Trump's uh, chief of staff for a short time. Um, And he was he was he said something profound. He said that a lot of these people coming from these countries are rural. In a sense that we don't even have in America, even the most rural Appalachia that you think of in, in, in America, they have water, they have toilets, right? We're talking about people who come from South American countries that are so rural, they, they have no education and literally have never seen running water. Right. Mm-hmm. You cannot just let people like that into the country and expect them to just assimilate. Right. There's a process that has to happen. We have a culture here that we do have to protect. Right. So for all the whole like open borders stick like that's stupid, too. So, Justin, I mean, w- what do you what do you think about the idea of fixing the problem at the root, which is to make the quality of
2: life better in these countries over time? Completely. Look, the only thing yeah. we disagree on is the is the rhetoric piece. Like, I agree with you; it's not a big thing, but rhetoric can help this. The rhetoric wasn't an issue at altogether. We wouldn't be seeing the influx of children and teens. It doesn't mean nothing. People listen. Yeah, that,
1: that's to the, why I said perhaps people yeah, people you know,
2: people listen to the president. Like, I don't know if yeah. AP was they, they were out there with clipboards, like they ran a poll right. or something, right. but they did, and yeah. it was widely told to them that mm, yeah. these children that. and teens that that came across the border did so because. They thought Biden declared the border open, so right. there is people are listening to what he says. Um, okay, but he did—he
1: didn't declare the border open. Of course open. not. Of he, course not. He has a that more their humane, translation. or yeah. he at least expressed a more humane, correct um, uh, dealing you know, with people de- uh, that came through. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So, so you know, but, but, again, but, I just
2: fail to see how Donald Trump's rhetoric was the answer. <laughs> I, I'm not. <laughs> right. I don't think anyone here is saying that that's right. the answer. But I do right. think that if Biden took, if Biden took a harder stance. On, our, on his rhetoric around our immigration, that yeah. this could be mitigated. So right. as, far, as far as what you're talking about specifically Anna, about that clip, like, I completely agree. This is about aid. It's about yeah. our position as watchdog of the world. But yeah. be, and we cannot be, I mean, I'm just repeating what you said, but we can't mm. be the world's life raft. It, right. If we let everyone in, we'll all sink together. Of
1: course, of course, I totally, we are on the same page there. You know, it's it's a very complex issue that tugs at people's heartstrings because you see, nobody likes seeing these kids, you know, yeah. and the whole kids in cages thing, I thought that was a terrible message for the Democrats when Trump was president because the mm-hmm. kids are still in cages today, yeah. and that has been used against the Democrats. Well, why aren't you crying? Why isn't AOC taking pictures <laughs> with uh, with the kids in cages like she was in, uh you know, the, the Trump administration? That's why that would Immigration is not pretty. The whole, no, the problem is not pretty. It, it, it is not uh, the kind of thing that, um, that people are just willing to dismiss. Right. So yep. it, it sticks with people people are, you know, I think there's a, there's a, there's a part of the liberal base that is just so moved by the story of these people fleeing, um, all the craziness yeah. and madness that they're fleeing, but we have to be sensible about it. So I, th- yes. I think we're pretty much on the same page here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And maybe rhetoric is, the, I think where we come to a middle ground is maybe the rhetoric could have been stronger from Biden. I just fail to see that Trump was. No, there. that's not <laughs> was, was the, the, the thing guy, you right? hold up as the <laughs> right. example, but right. you can do a better job. Okay. Leaving that alone. Okay, we can move on then. So moving on to the next big item of discussion, all the way back on June 5th of 2020, we dropped episode four of this podcast entitled A Lot More Empathy Needed, where we attempted to sort out the facts surrounding the George Floyd case. And we talked about police reform and then defunded the police movement and so on. Uh, Well, last week, almost a year after that episode aired, Um, crazy that it's been that long the world got at least a little bit of closure on this case when police officer derek chauvin uh was found guilty by a jury of his peers of second degree murder third degree manslaughter and second degree manslaughter so i haven't really had much of a chance to discuss this whole thing with justin Mm -hmm. but i will say personally that i was surprised and relieved by the verdict i was surprised because from a legal perspective Uh, After watching the entire trial, I thought the defense's case was weak, but that the prosecution didn't convince me beyond a reasonable doubt that this was murder. Because remember, there has to be premeditation in order for it to be murder. So manslaughter, yes, but I still remain unconvinced that Derek Chauvin had the intention of killing George Floyd. But needless to say, our justice system did its job. I agree that Chauvin deserves to be in prison, and I'm really happy— for the family of George Floyd, who now has some closure on this, at, at least. But I think what we'd like to talk about more here today is the reason why I was relieved by the verdict. The reason I was relieved by this verdict is very simply because I knew that a verdict of not guilty would have ended up in destruction of property and utter mayhem and violence in the streets. So I think it would be natural for anyone to be relieved that this wasn't the outcome. However, it brings up an important topic, which is how much did the threat of riots and looting and violence hang over the jury's head? How much did it influence them, if at all? And is that how our justice system is designed to operate? So here's the thing. Because I'm a rational and semi-intelligent human being, I understand that criminals and bad people exist in all walks of life, all colors, all sexes, all cultural backgrounds. And therefore... There are going to be times when a black man, for instance, is shot by a police officer and the shot was completely justified. Now, I'm not saying that was remotely the case in the George Floyd incident. Ultimately, we all saw the videotape, and that videotape to me was still more powerful than any witness who took the stand at the trial. What I worry about is that we're coming to a point where, when the killing is justified, because the perpetrator was legitimately a danger to society... The media and the activist class immediately kick into gear, very often jump to conclusions like we saw with LeBron James last week, and then essentially blackmail the jury to come up with the verdict that the court of public opinion likes rather than the verdict that is based on the facts of the case. And if they don't come up with that verdict, the penalty that comes down from the people is we're going to destroy your city and loot your stores. That weighs, I presume, very heavily on a jury, and it's not the way the system is supposed to work. So ultimately, I'm happy about the George Floyd case and how it turned out. But because I couldn't personally justify a verdict of of guilty of murder, I have to believe that the jury was influenced by the court of public opinion to a certain extent. So, Justin, two things. What do you think about that and are you concerned with the threat of the mob so to speak influencing juries in the future and secondly what do you think about the fact that joe biden the president of the united states weighed in on this case before the verdict came down
2: yeah so i I, unlike you didn't watch much of the trial but i did a lot of reading and in everything i've read i still find it difficult like you to find significant evidence that chauvin had intention of killing this man um and I think without beyond a shadow of a doubt, the, especially considering how fast this verdict was, was handed down, this jury was swayed. Uh, they did right. not want this country up in arms. And it, it showed in how quickly they, they gave their, their verdict and um, in the verdict itself. So, you know, an anonymous alternate jury member for the case even spoke to the media and addressed their fear, the, the fear not just for the country, for their life, if they didn't return a guilty verdict. Right. Um, as far as Biden, Uh, No, absolutely not. And of course, everyone's saying, "Well, Trump did it." It's true. I was going to just say that. Of course, (laughs) but I'm sorry. That's not a great example of what a president should be doing on either side. He could he could have stayed more neutral. There were a million other ways he could have messaged better around it. He's been a he's been a virtual signaler, in my opinion. This was no different. And yeah, okay, it was like we shouldn't be holding people to Trump's standard. How about the presidents right. before him? Let's try that. Right. And if that was the case, we held him up to that. Th- this would not have happened. Yeah,
1: for, for those who 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 didn't see it, Biden essentially came on and said that he hopes the verdict does the right thing and and finds the right the right verdict. Which is you know when the president of the United so States suggestive. says something like that, it, it's very suggestive and it's it's. Um, You know, I think uh, there's a very good case to be made that 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 kind of thing can sway a jury. Who knows? Yeah. But uh, there's there's an even more important thing to talk about here. And because it is so important, I think this should be a Riz's rant. Uh, You know what? Let's just do it, Jay. Let's go. Kick it with my Riz's rant music. Go. All right, Derek Chauvin was uh, convicted of second degree murder and of second and third degree manslaughter, but he wasn't convicted of being a racist. In fact, the word racist or racism wasn't even said once during the trial, and there's absolutely no evidence that Chauvin's actions were the result of his racism. There's no social media posts or audio files that prove he's a racist. Even in the OJ trial, we had that Mark Furman guy who had, you know, all these, these, uh, had a racist past that we could prove. Okay, we had nothing on Chauvin. Right? Yet, if you listen to the media's account and the reaction of a lot of the Democrats, this trial was a referendum on racism in policing and indicative of a law enforcement system that is systematically designed to disenfranchise people of color or minority communities. Now, two things can be true at once. One, the system as currently constituted absolutely comes down on minority and poor communities harder. No doubt about it, right? Therefore, reform of that system is warranted and needed. Justin and I have been agreeing on that for essentially a year now, right? True thing number two, painting all law enforcement officers as racist is not only immoral, it's an absolutely devastating political position, and it hurts the people living in minority and poor communities first. Because here's the thing, folks, this is what happens when you demonize all cops as racist and the entire system of policing as inherently racist. You ready? Wait for it. Cops quit and they take their early pension and get the hell out. We are basically seeing this in virtually all cities across the country. Why on God's green earth would anyone want to be a cop nowadays? The anti-police rhetoric is so heated and has picked up, has been picked up by sports franchises and Hollywood and the media. We are seeing a hollowing out of police forces all across America. They call it a blue flu. Police officers who are older are taking their pensions and saying, I'm done. OK, so what happens when there is less of an incentive to become a police officer or to stay on the force? Wait for it. Well, crime goes up because the best way to prevent crime is to invest in a police force. Anybody who's ever played Sim City should understand this. Right. Remember when you didn't put enough police and then crime would skyrise in the neighborhood. Right? This, this is obvious. Shit, right. So. What happens when crime goes up? Wait for it. Well, businesses leave. What you know, what business wants to operate in a, cr- a high crime neighborhood? What happens is when businesses leave, wait for it. Well, the tax base diminishes. The government then has to raise taxes to compensate. And then guess what happens? One more. Wait for it. More businesses leave bef- you know, because of the taxes. And that's how you end up with a Detroit. We are rapidly approaching a potentially very dangerous time in America where, due to the demonization of law enforcement, that pattern that I just outlined will start to take place in cities across America. And guess what happens when people stop feeling safe in their own communities and the businesses leave and the taxes increase? They start voting for the party that makes fighting crime the top priority. Because there's one thing no law-abiding citizen, white, black, or green in the country likes, and that's an increase of crime in their community. If Democrats want to lose their suburban base that they just picked up because Trump was so off-putting, a great way to accomplish this would be to continue demonizing police as racist and then watching them slowly but surely walk off the job. So I'm sorry if this mini rant is pissing off some of our left-wing listeners, but this is one thing I am just not down with. Reform of policing and police procedures, I'm in. Portraying all cops as racist murderers, I'm out. And it's a politically devastating message for the Democrats. When Bill Clinton ran for re-election for his second term, he realized this. There was a term back then, you might have heard of it, called security mobs. Crime was rising. A lot of mothers in suburban communities were looking for a strong on crime message from the president. Clinton ran on that and won. And... If the state of policing continues to deteriorate in this country and the Democrats keep sort of poo-pooing it and patting anti-police rhetoric on the head, good luck winning another election. And Joe Biden, frankly, has sucked at messaging when it comes to this subject. So after the killing of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, idiotic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib tweeted, quote, no more policing, incarceration and militarization. It can't be reformed. Okay, if Democrats are going to include abolishing police and prisons in their party platform, good luck winning an election ever again. And then Biden gets up at the podium after the George Floyd verdict, fails to condemn these ideas, and then essentially takes the stance that policing in America is inherently racist and has been for a long time. It's absolutely terrible messaging. If I were the Democratic president right now, I'd get up there and lead with the Rashida Talib thing, I'd say this. I'd say so. There are a few idi- idiots in my party who spew dangerous. And stupid nonsense on a regular basis. One of those idiots happens to be Rashida Tlaib, who suggested we should abolish abolish the police and uh, you know never put anyone in jail again. Folks, this is stupid and has no place inside the Democratic Party. That doesn't mean that we don't need meaningful reform. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at alternative methods of training police. That doesn't mean that we can't explore other technologies that would prevent these horrible tragedies from happening in the future. But I will not stand up here and say that law. Enforcement is an inherently racist enterprise because it's not true, and because the Democratic Party supports the men and women of law enforcement, especially because a large percentage of them happen to be black and brown. So, Justin and I privately were talking about current nut job Rudy Giuliani and his transformative tenure as mayor of the city of New York before he went crazy. You know, History tends to repeat itself, and this isn't the first time right now that, that there has been rabidly anti-police rhetoric in America. In the late 60s, for instance, there was heavy demonization of law enforcement, just like we're having now, and that was a time period where the problems in minority communities were certainly a lot more pervasive than they are now. Okay, Police budgets were cut, enrollment went down, you can look this up yourself, and in the 70s and 80s, um, we saw one of the worst rises in crime in American history. As I just mentioned with Bill Clinton, the messaging changed in the 90s as reducing crime became a priority for many Americans. And the first 15 years of the new millennium saw one of the most rapid decreases in violent crime in American history. New York, for instance, was a cesspool of crime in the 70s and 80s. How did Giuliani clean it up? He put cops on every corner. Invested in policing. When crime goes down, the economy flourishes, property values go up, the tax base increases. The hard fact is that strong policing is good for the community all around, especially in low income areas that have higher crime rates. If police are allowed to do their jobs correctly, investors are more willing to put money into those communities. Bottom line is that the Democratic rhetoric on policing is becoming dangerous politically for the party and if they lose in 2024 and beyond it you know it won't be my fault it won't be because i didn't warn them that's for sure now i wouldn't be giving a thorough analysis on this topic, if I didn't mention the counter rhetoric that is coming from the right. So in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a whole slew of situations that could potentially be labeled as police misconduct or worse. Every time you turn on a TV, there's another one, right? The Democrats go in their corner and scream racism. But the Republicans also knee jerk by immediately taking the side of the officer. So there's this new narrative I've noticed that's being pushed out by the right wing pundits and politicians, whereby they take a situation like the 13 year old kid in Chicago who was shot and killed by an officer. Officer after reportedly dropping a handgun in an alley uh, and they immediately proclaim that the real problem isn't the police officer being too quick with his trigger, but rather the fact that a 13 year old kid was out on the street at three in the morning. Right. So the narrative, th- this narrative is a bad faith, emotional appeal. The world is a crazy place. Crime happens. And if the message from the right every time a person is killed by the cop is to never question whether the cop's actions were justified, but rather to question why the person was committing a crime in the first place, I see that as almost as dumb as the Democrats calling all cops racist, right? There has to be a middle ground. Crime is a part of everyday life. Police need to be properly trained to prevent crime. And when an officer goes over the line and abuses his or her power... He or she should be held accountable.
2: It's really as simple as that. Rant done. Justin, thoughts? Wow, that was yeah, man, excellent rant. Uh, you, you know, I, I agree on all counts. I think that you're you're taking uh, a very measured approach, very practical approach to this whole thing, and and, right. and I hear it. I mean, you said it. All the uh, all of this, all of these statistics clearly point to the fact that a well-funded police force leads to a safer city. Um, I can't yeah. believe I'm about to say these words, but I'm impressed by what. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti said this past week in his State of the City address, he said, quote, if you want to abolish the police, you're talking to the wrong mayor. And he knows what makes his city tick. He knows what's going to cause problems and what's going to make it better. He knows mm-hmm. that a well-funded police force is going to create a safer city, period. Yeah, yeah. We need to have strong police forces. And I've I've been very,
1: if there's one thing I've been upset about in this administration, and it's not just the administration, I think it's just a lot of Democrats in general, they are very willing to hop on the bandwagon when it comes to this demonization of law enforcement. It is, I mean, forget the immoral part of it. It is an unbelievably stupid political move because people ultimately love the police and want yeah. the police to, to to do their job, need. right? Especially in minority communities. We need them, right? And, you know, just, uh, just to give you a, a little tiny personal example here, we were driving, this was a couple months ago. I was driving with my family um, down Wilshire Boulevard and there was a, there was a protest, right? And it was like an Armenian protest or something. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was for some, some injustice. Yeah. Um, and there was a bunch of cops there. Right. And you would think that, you know, the the, the people protesting were, were yelling really, really loud. So you would think my daughter, who has a little bit of anxiety, that she would see the people yelling and be scared of that. Right. As we drive by. She sees the police cars and she starts freaking out. She's wow. like, "They kill people. They kill people all the time." Because she's picking this wow. up from just that's watching the news, right? Yeah. Instead of being scared of the people yelling and protesting, sure. she's scared of the her police officers, yeah. right? Right? And I that I immediately was like, "No, that's not how it yeah. is." Got to buy her a couple police, of books, right? Right. Most police officers are trying to protect the community. I want my kids to know that they need to run to the police officer if they have a problem. These are heroes that are willing to run into the fire. Right. And if Democrats don't start picking that up and start changing their tune on this, Mm -hmm. they're in deep, deep trouble because I don't care how much, how liberal somebody is. They will vote for the other side. Right. Absolutely. So before we move on from this, Justin, uh, Tim Scott and a few of the Dems are Mm -hmm. attempting to put together a bipartisan bill on police reform. Do you have some details on this? I sure do, Rob. So the
2: Senate has been working hard on police reform in the wake of Derek Chauvin's uh, conviction. The Democrats passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act through the House for the second time last month, but certain key points such as qualified immunity are holding the, the legislation up in the Senate. A bipartisan community, as he mentioned, including Senators Cory Booker, Karen Bass, and Tim Scott, are hard at work on the problem. Speaking of uh, Senator Scott, he introduced a policing bill last summer during the Floyd global protest that failed in the Senate after Democrats said it relied too much on incentives rather than mandating change. Getting back to yeah. the issues at hand, Qualified immunity is the issue du jour, and so we should define it. Qualified immunity protects the police officers and other types of government officials from civil litigation in certain circumstances, allowing lawsuits only when an individual's clearly established statutory or constitutional rights have been violated. Senator Scott's proposal would create change, but would make it easier for victims of police violence to sue police departments rather than specific police officers. This committee hopes to have a bill on the floor by May 25th. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there is some bipartisan uh,
1: approaches here. Yeah. Uh, something needs to be done. See, that's the thing. I don't want anyone to who just listened to that rant to think that, that I am not, uh, that I, I, am not in favor of reforming the current system. Yeah, there's I think some there best, are deep there's reforms that needs right.
2: that can be changed. Yeah. Not just
1: that, you know, I was thinking this and I'm completely ignorant on this subject. So if you're mm-hmm. a cop out there who's listening to this and you're shaking your head, like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Just ignore me. But I just have a question. Okay. We see, I watch these nature shows and you see they'll take down like a 500 pound rhino with, a, with, with a dart, <laughs> right? Because they have, they have to tag their ear to track them. All right. Mm-hmm. So they take down the, 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 the Rhino with the dart, they tag their ear and five minutes later they're gone. And the Rhino's total has no idea anything happened. Mm-hmm. You're telling me there's no kind of technology that's better than a taser because some people could just, the taser doesn't even affect them Yeah, where they can incapacitate somebody, but not permanently disfigure them or dismember them. And, uh and you know, they, they could then take those people in the custody without having to kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, I I mean, can't we use technology for this i mean' it's, I, it's an interesting I don't know. question, yeah, no, right. I mean,
2: like why is there no pharmaceutical answer to this? Maybe it's a rights violation. Uh, I mean, look, if someone has a heart condition, they're going to get screwed up by a taser just as much as they are going to get screwed up <laughs> right. by a depressant, so exactly, yeah, exactly I hear that yeah that's interesting yeah,
1: I don't know uh, all of this stuff has to be sorted out. I think there, there it is one of those industries where I have respect for the industry, but I think it is in need of dire changes mm-hmm. uh, immediately, right yeah. if not mm-hmm. sooner, yeah. Okay, so now moving on, Uh, this is the big one for me. If you follow me on Facebook, uh, this issue is not only something I'm passionate about, but the Republican attempt to screw with this issue is frankly pushing me further to the left, right? Uh, a few okay. people have, have actually told me that since we took a break, I seem like I've gone further left, right? Mm-hmm. And what, what, what I'm thinking about – or what I'm talking about here is voting rights, right? Yeah. Now, now, we have known for a long time that making it harder for certain people to vote has been a GOP strategy for decades. I don't even think a, a lot of them uh, – you know apologize for this at the, at this point uh republicans and conservative talking heads have used the lie of election integrity and election security to justify sort of slyly changing the rules that ultimately end up disenfranchising a lot of voters who tend to not vote for them, at least Mm -hmm. historically. Now, as we've talked about before, and this is just my opinion, I continue to believe this is a stupid long term strategy for the GOP, because I think it alienates that working class minority voter who, as we saw from the last election, is becoming more receptive to voting for the GOP. I think I even predicted that by the year 2040, I think the majority of of minorities in this country could be voting Republican, right? Mm-hmm. But be, because it's not there yet, the GOP is fond of, of changing rules here and there to, to benefit them short term. So let's get the facts out of the way first, okay? There is no such thing as voter fraud in the United States that has ever been proven to have taken place at a level that would have affected the outcome of an election. It mm-hmm. is a complete bullshit myth. We go through this every time Republicans lose an election. Donald Trump exacerbated the issue. We've had Republicans put together commissions to explore all the supposed voter fraud that's happening all over with hundreds of thousands of illegals who are apparently voting, and they've never come up with any substantial evidence. Several of these commissions were sort of quietly disbanded in the dark of night as to avoid any embarrassment of the over the fact that they were complete and utter failures. We even had Clay Cogman come on the show and we did an episode about voter Mm -hmm. fraud. We've had conservative judges all across the country throw out election fraud claims because they had no basis in reality or fact. The bottom line is that massive voter fraud has been a GOP and Republican led fantasy for a long time that they've never been able to prove. So let me ask you guys something. If there isn't a problem that's ever been found and we continually come to this realization, why do we need reform of our voting system? Okay. I'll tell you what needs reforming. It needs to be easier to vote, not harder. Okay. I've always thought it was crazy that in some States you have to, uh, vote on on a tuesday when a lot of working people can't get off work mm-hmm. voting is protected by the constitution in the constitution it says absolutely nothing about prerequisites to vote other than being an american citizen you don't have to have a certain level of intelligence you don't have to have a certain level of uh, knowledge of civics frankly I wouldn't even be opposed to an aptitude test in order to fulfill your right to vote. Honestly, I think that would ultimately be good for the Democrats. But, you know, let's face it, the the, the blue state school districts are just better than the, they're more well funded and better than the red state ones. right? But at the current moment, no matter how poor you are, no matter how dumb you are, no matter how little you may know about American government or American history, if you're a citizen of the United States, you get to vote. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest things that happened while we were on our break was this bill in Georgia, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with because it, it led to a lot of speaking up from corporate America and sports franchises, which we'll get to in a minute. Put simply, I've read the entire bill. It is a dirty, filthy trick. It limits ballot access. It potentially confuses voters which I'll explain in a minute. And it gives a whole lot more power to Republican lawmakers. It's as simple as that. And the right wing press, if you watch Fox, they're doing the whole, what, what's wrong with it? Right? Well, I'm, I'm going to go through all of it. Okay. So let me run through the most significant changes in the state of Georgia that will occur due to this bill. Justin, Jump in whenever you want to add to something or if you have a have a rebuttal. OK, so voters will now have less time to request absentee ballots. So why does that matter? Well, frankly, a lot of people are lazy. A lot of people wait, wait to the last minute. Right. There is nothing in the Constitution that says you ha- you cannot be lazy. If you want to vote. Right. A lot of people wake up that day and their neighbor tells them it's time to vote. And guess what? Those people have just the same right to vote as you and I do. It's it, it, there's nothing that says you have to you, you should have to apply for a for a for or, or register to vote in a timely manner. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You should be able to vote whenever you whenever it's mm-hmm. time to vote. Basically. Yeah. Right. OK. Secondly, and more importantly, there are strict new ID requirements for absentee ballots. So, now let's talk about voter ID for a minute because this sure. is perhaps the most hot button topic in right-wing politics today. It's all they talk about is voter ID. Um people go uh, uh you know on rampages about this on 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 you know the right-wing media channels that are mm-hmm. out there. So, because the GOP and conservative pundits are trying to twist the narrative now by claiming that the the assumption among the left that low-income, mostly minority democrat demographics can't get an ID, and they're, they're saying that that's racist in and of itself. Well, no, it isn't. And in fact, it's not just black and brown people in urban and very rural areas of the country that have problems with voter ID, but poor people in places like Appalachia have a similar issue. This is a big country with diverse cultural backgrounds and geographic limitations. So there was a documentary I saw a few years ago that really stuck with me. It was about the Mississippi Delta. It was a music documentary. Um, which is, you know, know, the Delta is primarily a poor and extremely rural area of the country that has been in many cases untouched by modern technology and lifestyle. So you might be saying from your apartment in San Francisco, like, come on, how hard is it to get an ID? But in places like the Mississippi Delta, where their culture and lifestyle have essentially remained the same for over 100 years, there are tens tens of thousands of people who don't have an ID and don't need an ID for their everyday life. It's just not a part of life, right? They don't travel like we do. A lot of them live in very rural areas where they've lived life successfully without without an ID for a long time. In these areas, there tends to be a high level of illiteracy. If you can't read, it's kind of hard to fill out the paperwork one needs to obtain an ID, right? Mm -hmm. And guess what? Those people are as entitled as you and I to vote just the same, right? Mm -hmm. So quick personal story. When I was working in uh, entertainment, I was, uh, I was working on a traveling reality show and we were filming in a dive. I'm not going to tell you what the show was cause it was, it was, it was a pretty raunchy show, but we were filming in a, in a dive bar about 50 miles outside of Chicago in mm-hmm. Illinois. Right. Um, and we spent the entire day filming there. And when we were, uh, when we went around the bar at the end to get release forms from everybody that was in the bar, because you know, you can't use the footage unless people you get these release forms signed. Uh, half of the people in the bar wouldn't sign the release forms because they couldn't read, okay? These were white people, mind you. And this was a rural suburb of Chicago, okay? Not exactly a small city. And those people are entitled to vote Just like you and me, right? Mm -hmm. There have been extensive studies done, Google it yourself, that show definitively over and over again that voter ID laws disenfranchise poor and uneducated voters. So just because we might not be able to relate to the concept of not having an ID doesn't mean it isn't a problem for thousands of Americans, right? So, Justin, first, I I guess we'll stop there before I go on to the rest of the bill. What do you think basically about what I've just said?
2: So look, I know the Constitution doesn't give us the right to drive a car, not specifically anyway. We need a license in order to do that, right? So th- this is where the argument falls flat to me. Um, our Constitution, as you said earlier, doesn't—it does not protect undocumented or does not give the right to vote to undocumented, illegal immigrants in this country. Uh, right. You know, they should not be given the right to vote until they become citizens. I maintain right. that I'm for that path to citizenry you, As you mm-hmm. have, yeah. But until you walk in and become a citizen, you can't vote here, right? we, we we've, mm-hmm. we've, we've, we've figure that out here right uh the reality of that idea is unless we require some form of identification we really can't tell who and who is and who isn't a citizen so to strengthen my point a little bit uh i'll point to a 2005 report by former president jimmy carter and former secretary of secretary of state james baker which after comprehensive study recommended voter id requirements to be slowly phased in over a period of five years and accompanied by the issuance of free id cards provided by mobile ID vans that would visit traditionally un- un- underserved communities. Now, why can't we come to a compromise like that? It makes sense to me. There's a, it's a popular policy as well. A 2011 Rasmussen poll found that 75% of likely voters believe voters should be required to show some, so, some form of photo ID before being allowed to vote. A Pew right. uh, poll showed that 95% of Republicans, of course, 83% of independents, And sixty-one percent of Democrats favor voter ID requirements. So I think there's some middle ground to be had here, where we do need to know that you are a citizen in order to allow you to vote, and that doesn't have to be a a, a, an ID that's difficult to get. We can provide services to the communities you're talking about and provide outreach so that people can be eligible to vote via voter ID. That's sort of where I fall on it.
1: Yeah, you know, I would I would agree with that for if, if not for two things. Number one there there is no evidence that a high volume of illegals are voting so it, again if it's not a problem it doesn't need fixing this is again this is a right wing fantasy they have they have been convinced for years that these large numbers of illegals are voting and they've never produced any evidence if they could produce evidence i might actually change my mind on this i might mm-hmm. say okay that's too much of a problem illegals shouldn't be voting uh we're going to have to 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 figure out another way right number 2 is that um, I have read all of these studies. I've studied this extensively mm-hmm. that says that voter ID does disenfranchise um, poor minority voters. It's not like it's a huge amount, but it's enough where it could uh, impact an election, especially when every single electoral vote counts, right? Well, I agree. Um, if, if
2: there's a blanket statement and you don't serve mm-hmm. these communities, of course they're mm-hmm. going to be disenfranchised. Well, here's my middle are, ground. If there's outreach, you know, I think right. it makes a difference.
1: Okay. Uh yeah, if there's outreach, but again, it's a big country. I know you've been around, but I don't think either of us have been to to some of these areas that are so remote and sure. so rural. Um talking about these tiny little areas where people I don't know, man. Just-
2: I, I, I stopped off at a gas station once to go to uh use the restroom. And right. there were, um, there were fishing flies on the wall. That was their decoration. <laughs> so I've been to some pretty interesting go. areas.
1: I'm sure you have, but I'm saying there are some, like even in Appalachian region, because yeah. it's a huge area where people live off the grid completely. Mm-hmm. And those yes. people have the right to vote. I, you know, well, I don't know that they're again, using it, whether they have an ID or not, but sure. Maybe, maybe not, but they have the right to, right. Yes. Um, and so, uh, in terms of middle ground, my middle ground is the, um, Signature verification. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. everyone has a signature, even mm-hmm. if they're illiterate, right? There's there's there was a study done that people who um the, uh, among the illiterate population uh, – and I forgot – I wish I could quote where the study came from, but I think it was uh, – I think I read this in The Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Among the illiterate population in the country, 95% of them can at least sign their name. Mm-hmm. Okay, Everyone can sign their name, right? So signature verification, I'm fine with. Mm-hmm. I'm just not fine with anything that potentially stands in the way of people fulfilling their constitutional duty to be able to vote. Right. Yeah. That's that, that. That's my entire thing. So back to the Georgia bill, because it doesn't just stop there. OK, mm-hmm. um, let's go over a couple of the other things or a few of the other things in this bill that the GOP is sort of like acting like it's nothing. Right. And I'll I'll point out what the problems are. OK, so it is now illegal for election officials to mail out absentee ballot applications to all voters. OK, again, that is just making it harder for people to vote absentee. Um I don't see anything wrong with that. If somebody wants to vote absentee, may, you know, there's all sorts of uh, uh, of issues people have with getting down to a polling place. It is now illegal for election officials to mail out absentee applications. OK, mm-hmm. drop boxes, they still exist, but barely. OK, what would be the point of removing drop boxes outside of trying to make it harder for people to 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 vote? Now, G- Georgia is a very rural state. There's a lot of very rural areas. If you live in this tiny little town in Georgia, you might be 30 miles from a drop box. So the obvious intention here is that you'll say, uh, I don't feel like driving 30 miles. Forget it. I won't vote this year. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make it harder, right? Mobile voting centers, uh, you know, think of an RV where you could vote are essentially banned. Again, another tool of of making it harder to vote. Uh, early voting is expanded in a lot of small counties, but probably not in more populous ones. Okay. So what does that do? Well, populous counties like we have here in Los Angeles, people could wait three, four hours in line. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're not allowing those, the early voting to happen in the biggest counties. So that will, again, people show up at the poll. They see there's a three hour line and they say, eh, not that important to me. I don't like Hillary Clinton anyway. And they go home right Mm -hmm. you know you know so again making it harder for people okay this one is uh is is probably the worst uh offering food and water to voters waiting in line now risks misdemeanor charges you'd be charged with a misdemeanor now the the uh, i heard even ben shapiro's excuse for this one he's the smart conservative was that well somebody who's giving you water could then bribe you to vote for their candidate right Right. But that's just so I can't even wrap my head around that. How stupid that is. And the truth of the matter is Georgia is a very unhealthy state. It is a very overweight state. It's the second most overweight state in the country. There's a lot of people who will be standing in line is a hot state on some of these elections. It might get very hot. People are standing in line. They might not have brought their water because they're not smart or because they're forgetful or lazy or whatever it is. And they start feeling faint and they say it's more it, it is more of an incentive for them to leave, to get out of line and say, I'm not voting. There is no other reason why that should be in there, right? If you go to the wrong polling place, it will be even harder to vote. And this has been – this bill has this kind of stuff over and over again where if you make a mistake, you're done, right? Mm-hmm. They even there was, a, there was an article I read in The New York Times that pointed out there are two different numbers on the Georgia ID that you now have to, and you only have to fill in one of them. There's like an ID number, and then there's like a state number or something. If you fill in the wrong number, your ballot gets automatically rejected. So, And they were saying for poor, uneducated people, illiterate people, Mm -hmm. the chances of them filling in the wrong number are so much higher. So this was, again, something, uh, these are things that they're doing to make it harder for people to vote, okay, and and make it more prone to for them to make mistakes, right? If election problems arise, a common occurrence, it is now more difficult to extend voting hours. Okay, election officials can no longer accept third party funding, a measure that nods to right wing conspiracy theories uh, with an eye towards voter fraud. The state attorney general will manage an election hotline, so the state attorney general is going to be taking calls of people who claim they see voter fraud. Okay that's a that, that that's again a republican fantasy the republican controlled legislature has legislature has more control over the state election board the gop led legislature is empowered to suspend county election officials and runoff elections will happen faster and could become harder to manage okay all of this is designed to disenfranchise poor people lazy people stupid people all these people who the GOP thinks if we can't get if we don't have them voting we're gonna have a better shot and it's not just Georgia it's happening all over the country so uh all of this stuff makes voting harder uh I think it, it, it's something that that needs to be tackled and the way to tackle it for the Democrats is HR1 mm-hmm. um, this is a bill that would uh, essentially federalize a lot of the rules and take them out of the hands of the state which I think is something that's necessary right now I mean Justin how do you feel about it
2: it may be necessary, but it's certainly not constitutionally allowed in my mm-hmm. estimation of studying the document. What's constitutionally pr- protected is the state's rights to run the election how they want. The federalization of voting for a president is not covered in the document, save the time that they vote will be at the same time. So knowing what, what we do about the intent, uh, as far as the intent of the founding fathers goes uh, it's easy to understand what they wanted. The federalization of this practice is not something they intended for. And I know that there are new and different problems that arise, but we need to understand what the document says. And right now it says that states will have the right to vote how they decide. Um, So I view this as a state problem and not as a uh, a, a national problem. And I think if we start federalizing the voting process, Mm -hmm. we may run into some issues constitutionally and legally
1: constitutionally maybe i don't see what the issues would be in terms of everybody having the right to vote that and and that is the biggest priority for me i mean maybe this is just my progressive dreaming or whatever for sure
2: but i think we have to color inside the lines i mean the constitution mm -hmm. is there again you know this is this is this is our differentiation on how we view constitutional law and and for me it's coloring in between in between the lines that were drawn for us by for by by the founding fathers right and i I, and, and that's part of i don't think they intended for this Okay. Yeah, I mean... I want to I
1: want to talk just for a second here about some of the bad faith arguments, though, that that the right is using. Like you keep hearing people saying, well, you need an ID to fly on an airplane. You know, an airplane is not a, a constitution. traveling on an airplane is not protected by the Constitution. And right. I would I would venture to guess that anyone who can't who doesn't have an ID in this country because they are so isolated or so dumb or so whatever <laughs> not it is. On right. They're not flying on planes and probably never have. OK, of course. no, it's so, a silly. It's a silly argument.
2: Right. It's apples and oranges. I agree. With right.
1: You. Right. Okay, so uh, one of the things I find most interesting is that mm-hmm. the Republican Party has fought tooth and nail in the face yeah. uh, of decades of democratic resistance to keep corporate tax rates super low. Mm-hmm. So, uh little little Marco Rubio, uh one of the squishiest and little yuckiest Marco. of all, uh, of all Republican politicians, he wrote an op-ed for the New York Post last week entitled Corporations That Undermine America American Values Don't Deserve GOP Support. So, uh, that's a good lead off for for what he's talking about, which is so many of these corporations have have decided to sort of take the Democratic side on this. And maybe it's a little bit of virtue signaling. So we had uh, we had MLB move the 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 um, all star game from mm-hmm. Atlanta to yeah, so, so they moved it to Denver, which mm-hmm. is funny because I'm going to be there. Yeah. Um, but uh, and my dad's going to try to get tickets, actually. Oh, no, but, sure. you know, that another bad faith argument was, well, you know, Denver or Colorado has stricter voting laws than, um, than Georgia, which is actually not true at all. They have signature verification in Colorado, but 96% of the population votes by mail. Right. 96%, sure. right? Well, I mean, look so, at some
2: of these larger states that right, it's uh, extreme.
1: have done it, you know, since the 90s. Right. It is, it is extremely progressive. Right. So so um, like I said, Marco Rubio wrote this op ed where he was basically attack. I just thought this was funny. He was attacking corporations for sure. undermining yeah. the values that 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 the GOP. Holds mm-hmm. right. So right. John favreau from Positive America commented on the op-ed, saying, "Quote: The author of this op-ed, a senator from Florida, is currently fighting to protect corporations from paying higher taxes <laughs> and losing their foreign tax shelter to yeah. the degree to the the degree to which Republicans have not thought through the weaknesses in their argument should be stunning, but truly isn't. Okay, so there's some strange irony." In that isn't there like while, while GOP members are attacking corporations for coming out against oh, GOP legislative priorities
2: they're simultaneously fighting hard to keep their taxes as low as possible so yeah, um, yeah. look I, I it's 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 a silly in concept I understand like I'm 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 happy for the theory of low taxes right and yeah. and, and I will keep fighting for that however you know I think I do think this is a precedent as, as far as corporations virtue signaling that's been set over and over again. Um, yeah, like why do we, why do we need our sneakers or our pizza or our pillows to tell us anything? I want yeah. my shoe I want shoes on my feet. I want mm-hmm. my pizza in my belly, and I want right. a pillow to sleep on. I don't need any of those things doing anything else for me other than that. Right, right. No,
1: no I, I get that, and I normally would agree with that. I think. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this because there's been so much corporation involvement in politics in the last, even just since we took off, right? I mean, it's like everyone is just getting on board. And I think we are at a very interesting inflection point in American history where the corporations are basically deciding that the values they stand for are going to define their product or the mm-hmm. kind of corporation they are, yeah, their identity and their their identity. right. They they are making a conscious decision to say, you know what, we might lose conservative uh, people drinking who drink Coke. Maybe mm-hmm. they'll drink Pepsi instead. But that's a calculated risk we're going to take, yeah. and we want to stand for something. And, and ultimately, I, you know, I think it's a good thing right now because we need. We need corporations to be on the side. We need as many, uh, not even corporations, we need as many people as possible and as many entities as possible to be on the side of truth, right? So if there's an opportunity for a corporation to get involved in something because they want to get the word out that this is the way things are, they, you know, with this whole voter ID thing, they were making a statement, MLB was making a statement that this is not fair and
2: it's not fair to
1: the point where we're gonna pull out of 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 georgia
2: right but it's somewhat it's somewhat subjective truth that's the problem i have with it in in a world of this is your truth and this is my truth Mm -hmm. what's who's to say that this is truth especially if a corporation's telling me it uh i just don't buy it i I don't buy that it's something we should i should i'm not taking cues on the truth from the mlb i'm sorry I'm just not let them play baseball (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, I understand that, and you could say the same thing about Coke, right? Absolutely, Coca Cola, right? I, I get your point. I'm just saying there is maybe as a progressive and as somebody who, especially with this issue, I'm very passionate about. Absolutely, I I am excited to see franchises that I like mm-hmm. get involved in this kind of issue and make a statement, right? I mean, we've talked. We, there's been many examples where I've made the opposite. Yeah. Uh, on the show where i've said like listen i'm not cool with with, i think when we were talking about george floyd i was saying like the whole we we did i think we did a whole episode about sports and the politicization of of sports Mm -hmm. and i was we basically were of the same agreement that like sports is better when it's not politicized right but i don't know maybe my my coat tastes better when it's
2: not politicized
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. So moving on. I mean, two more things I wanted wanted to to, to bring up on this subject. Yeah. Um, I want to point out that um, r- the dichotomy that exists between the way Republicans, the Republican base, at least, thinks about the Second Amendment mm-hmm. and the way they think about voting, because it seems to me that there is they want very little uh regulation uh or roadblocks in the way of people being able to own guns, and they will always say, well, the Second Amendment specifically says, shall not be infringed, right. and they always bring they brought up exactly what I just brought up about the Constitution. It says nothing in the Constitution that somebody can't own a firearm right Mm -hmm. it just says that 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 every american citizen has a right to bear arms exactly um the dichotomy between that and the way that they think about voting Mm -hmm. which is another constantly constitutionally protected activity where they want all of these roadblocks and all of these things in the way explain that to me
2: yeah i I mean it's it's an interesting and ironic point to bring up and it doesn't have a through line um i think that voting Is more complicated than purchasing a gun and having it at your home. You know, voting because it requires um, a lot more organization. You have to get people to a polling place. They have to vote. You have to organize. You have to count the votes somehow. I mean, that's why they should make it. I'm all for getting rid of polling places. Okay, I think
1: everyone like I think what they do in Colorado is the best way. Send everyone a ballot, track the ballot, have signature Mm -hmm. verification. And that's it. Make it as easy as possible. But the point is, they, the, G, the, the GOP and Republican base doesn't like when you make purchasing a gun difficult.
2: Let's look at a couple facts when it comes to voter laws. Uh, taking a step back, I think it could okay. be interesting. So okay. let's use New, New Hampshire as an example to see right. if these restrictions do make a difference, right? Because the mm-hmm. state constitution requires in New Hampshire that residents show up to vote in person unless right. they're physically disabled or out of town. It requires that the final vote t- tally for each candidate be publicly declared at each polling place the night of the election after the polls close, which means no early voting. None. New Hampshire does not allow provisional ballots and it requires voter registration and in-person registration at a town hall or at a polling place on election day. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of restrictions around voting in New Hampshire. Now, does New Hampshire, because of these things, have one of the lowest voter turnout rates in the country? No. No. For the past five presidential elections, the state's been in the top five for voter Mm -hmm. turnout. For the past four presidential presidential elections, it's been third, pulling 72.2% of its voting age population to the polls. Now, let's look at Oregon for a second, which is the first Mm -hmm. state to switch to vote by mail in 96. Prior to the switch, it had been in the top 11 states for voter turnout in presidential elections, even beating our friends in New Hampshire. But it has not beat New Hampshire since it changed to all mail-in ballots dropping Mm -hmm. as low as 17th in the country in 2012. The proposal laid out in this bill is exactly what landed California in the 46th, 49th, 49th, and 43rd slots in the past four presidential presidential elections. So I think the answer, honestly, is something you said on the podcast previously. I don't know, I haven't seen enough evidence to really determine that these things stop people from going to the polls, but I do Mm -hmm. think if you make the day of voting a national holiday, and you give people the time to vote, no matter what Mm -hmm. the, the... the things surrounding the voting are. If they want to vote, they will go vote. Because we're yeah. taking the, the, the human element out of this. People are lazy, yeah. you said it yourself. Yeah. People mm-hmm. don't care. You know, right. there, are, there are a lot of these kinds of and people. And people who are lazy and don't care should still be allowed to vote. Allowed to, <laughs> yeah. but they should also yeah. be allowed not to vote if they are so yeah, lazy and don't have the desire to do so. So my point, my point is, is that could be part of the issue in, in surrounding some of these things. Like It could mm-hmm. be why we see the stats around New Hampshire and Oregon. And so I think if you if you give people the day, but if you yeah. give them the day to go vote, the people mm-hmm. that want to vote and care about doing this yeah. will go do it. And the people yeah. that don't, well, won't. I don't think anything else is going to change that.
1: You might be right. I mean, listen, the, the, the I think, I don't know if the um, New Hampshire and Oregon, I think it's apples and oranges because you have to look at demographics in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is a, is a state in new England. It is a very small state. Uh, it is a highly educated state. Yes. It, there are rural areas of, of New Hampshire, but, um, you don't have very many poor, um, minority communities living in new hampshire that might not have that kind of access or might not have voter id or whatever right in oregon you have a different situation so every state is different and maybe that's sure. why that's every why. state. Yeah. i just think states all states all 50 states should focus on making Voting as easy as possible and take away all of
2: those robux because it is our basic constitutional duty. I, I completely hear that. My argument right. is just I don't know that it makes that big of a difference. I don't okay. know that we, we should be fighting so hard for for it rather than fighting fighting for something like a national holiday. Yeah, that may well, make tell a bigger me, difference.
1: Then, then answer me this: Why has the GOP and then it's impossible to deny this? Why yeah. have they consistently been? This has been a consistent platform of the GOP. To, to ram down legislation that makes it hard harder for people to vote. What is the rationale if we've already established there isn't any real voter fraud that's substantial enough to
2: change the outcome of an election? Well, I what think is the reason? For I it? think they're fighting something that doesn't exist. That, okay. And that is voter fraud that doesn't mm-hmm. change the outcome of an election. I think right. that 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 it's a problem that isn't there. And right. they're fighting this problem for whether that's political a political gain sure <laughs> yeah sure. absolutely and they're, but
1: they're appealing to all the conspiracies yeah, of the it only, masses it, it, right. it
2: only helps them in their fight mm-hmm. to to increase their uh voter base right right to yeah try and cram through legislation based on something that isn't actually real but something that is uh-huh. something that they claim is pervasive right and, and and that that that's a perfect segue into
1: one more uh dichotomy that i want that I wanted to point out here, which is the the difference in the way that the Republicans, the GOP conservatives and the base think about climate change, for instance, mm-hmm. which is that we have virtually every scientist in the world. That doesn't just say this is happening, but that there's going to be devastating effects to it. Scientific America, which is which is a very prestigious science magazine, just changed the term of climate change to climate emergency because they think it is that dire of a situation. The Republican attitude generally towards climate change is that we don't need to do anything about it now. Voter fraud, however, where there is absolutely no evidence of systemic fraud going on. That needs to be taken care of urgently. And in fact, whenever for the little that Trump has spoken up since he lost the election, all he's talked about is voter fraud. Right. It's it's just it's just an amazing thing to me. We have real evidence of climate change. We don't want to do anything. We have no evidence of voter fraud. We need to change the whole system to prevent this from happening. This non-existent problem. It's an amazing thing. The
2: politicians will politate.
1: Right. Right. I just wish sometimes that the Democrats were a little better at it than they are. Yeah. Okay. So finally, uh, for this catch up session, uh, which, you know, I guess you could call this, we're now over two hours in, we're still catching (laughs) up. Right. So, uh, we should talk a little bit about the Biden administration and what they're doing on the foreign policy front. Justin, this is your expertise.
2: So why don't you take it away? You got it. So, uh, with Iran, we have some bad news bears here. Uh, there's lifting sanctions. There, there's, we're returning to the Iran deal. Uh, I don't think any of it has a happy ending. So this is it's a nuclear agreement that's flawed to the point of straight impotence, in my opinion. The bottom line is there's nothing holding Iran to this agreement. If sanctions were lifted by the Biden administration, which is what the threat is right now, hundreds of billions of dollars would flow into the country of Iran. The money would not be used to improve the country. It'd be used for military intimidation throughout the region. Um, and at stake here is the highlight of the Trump presidency, and there aren 't many uh, yeah. the, the Abraham Accords at its right. core, the, the accords function partly to deter I- Iranian aggression and, and this uh, lifting of the sanctions, the funneling of, of increased dollars, would just destabilize the region. The concessions that this administration is prepared to make it undercuts the position of all of these new allies. Yeah, um, and that's I, I basically agree with yeah, you here. Yeah, it's dangerous, I think.
1: Uh, I don't know what it is with the Democrats and this sort of appeasement to Iran. Yeah. like just one um, more
2: time, it, uh, maybe one more time, maybe.
1: I think they are still under this wrong-headed impression that Iran is on the verge of moderation, which is not true. They are the number one state sponsor of terror. Um, yeah. They are the mo- they our most dangerous uh, um, adversary in that region. Mm-hmm. And I-, I just, this is one of those issues, just like with the police stuff, yeah. that I
2: just do not toe the party line when it comes to. So yeah, I they're, agree There are pressures of peace and it's like yeah. it could be a dangerous thing to appease. Absolutely. Them. So we got Russia and China. Of course, we can't talk about foreign policy without talking about Russia and China. And we'll do them together since they're pretty related. Uh, now, while Biden has utilized a very strong rhetoric in asserting the U.S. as a world leader, which I love, especially where Russia and China have been involved, the rhetoric is where it stopped. It's been all talk, no action. As far as China is concerned, while rightly labeling the Communist Party's oppression of the Uyghurs as genocide, calling President Xi a thug and telling him that there will be repercussions for this, things like the crackdown on Hong Kong, he has yet to unveil a strategy or act in any way. Yet China continues to spit in our faces, increasing military activity in the South China Sea and violate freedoms in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, And on Russia, like with China, Biden has messaged well. He's called Putin a killer, uh, which he is. He's pledged that Russia would pay for any interference in our elections. But when Russia moved 150,000 troops to the Ukrainian border and continued to undermine our democracy with cybersecurity threats and election interference, Biden did not announce nor did he enact any discernible strategy. Sanctions are not deterrence. We know that. Um, Yet these are the only actions that have been imposed. Uh, There's no strategy with either country. And we're getting beaten here. These two countries pose the greatest existential threat. Iran may be the the greatest physical threat, but these two countries pose the greatest existential threat to our nation as there's ever been. Uh, And I think we need to take decisive action against both for violations of human rights and aggressions against the United States. Tough talk, which has happened, has to be followed by tough action. And so far, we've only seen the former
1: yeah you know uh this isn't my expertise uh on china and uh and russia but uh, i i basically agree with everything mm-hmm. you just said i would love to hear a well-informed counter to to that because i i i at the moment don't have one but yeah I, i'd really like to hear what the other side for for not acting in regard to china for sure um
2: yeah would be an interesting we're conversation be, yeah. look I know exactly. Biden has had to focus internally. I understand that. Mm-hmm. We have had a crisis. Um, right. But part of, a, a big part of his job, if COVID is not going on, 95% of his job is external. And right. I think he needs to start focusing on that or we're going to be in big trouble. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, we will revisit that. So that, is that it for foreign policy
1: for today? We got today? a
2: little bit more. Okay. Uh, so after almost 20 years in the country, President Biden announced a complete withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. By September 11th, 2021, which is 20 years after the attack on the Twin Towers, if you can believe it, Uh, this extends that date from the previous deal struck with the Taliban. Yes, we struck a deal with the Taliban and we said it'd be May 1st. Yeah. So the withdrawal includes 3,500 U.S. troops, 7,000 NATO and Allied supporting forces, and 18,000 plus military contractors. The date of this decision is the perfect metaphor for the strategy behind it. It's entirely symbolic. It's, it's a virtue signal with no sound strategy. And trust me, the Taliban's loving it. In announcing this withdrawal, Biden has gone against the advice of the chair of the joint chiefs, who warned against a complete withdrawal for fear of the Taliban being allowed to operate with zero accountability. With almost complete certainty, the Taliban will ultimately overpower the Afghan co- government. And that will be that. I know that this is another interesting talking point where yeah. the far right and far left have sort of combined. i don't even think
1: it's the far right far right anymore i think it's the right in general i mean there's incredible support for getting out of afghanistan you are in the minority now i am i mean you absolutely are and you know what the funny thing is i think i I more agree with you i think a a presence in afghanistan uh, keeping a skeleton crew there is necessary for for the world absolutely um so i you know i don't have really emotional or strong feelings i understand how people are looking at this and say we haven't accomplished enough there it's over right we want to get the hell out right yeah, i it, i understand the the counter i mean if you if you listen to rand paul mm-hmm. talk about this i mean he's extremely passionate that that it's been way too uh, this just came late even trump said uh that he praised this move it was like the one thing he's praised about biden and said well i actually said it should have been earlier
2: <laughs> right right so it's a big um, talking yeah, point for him but yeah i look yeah. i think that uh sure there's nothing accomplished by being there except for right. a deterrent right and um, that's right. an accomplishment in my opinion yeah. you may not be able to see it yeah. except in its absence, and I think unfortunately we may it is a, it is a very concerning if the
1: Taliban takes over that region again yeah, um, yeah it, it, so so we'll see how it pans out um it was a a, a politically expedient move for Biden for it sure was. it's very politically popular on yeah, both symbolic. sides look but, at the date he but chose. again. Right, but look at the look at his poll numbers. Did the yeah. poll numbers go up? So uh, you know, no, it didn't. I mean, he, he um, people support that policy, but still don't support Biden. Yeah, so I know, it's
2: pretty it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's very so, interesting. So, so two two more quick points on poll yes. policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, the issue of Armenian genocide, which is mm, a, a really one. really big deal with uh, yeah. major implications. So on the good surface, Biden, yeah, good Biden. Uh, this yeah. action, <laughs> you would think it, you know, it carries no force of law. Yet Biden's been the only president willing to use the term genocide here, which is unbelievable. So this is due to, to, I'm not sure everyone knows this, this is due to the fear of backlash from Turkey, which we're seeing a little bit right now, vigorously Mm -hmm. denies the killings. Uh, Turkey maintains that the World War I era violence between the Muslim Ottomans and Christian Armenians led to large casualties on both sides. There's a lot of both sidesism going on Right, both sidesism. So the evidence is clear that Turks engaged in a years-long ethnic cleansing campaign, Mm -hmm. included forced death marches, mass starvation, As you Mm -hmm. said, this is a good Biden. We must remain the watchdog of the world. In order to do that, we have to call a spade a spade, no matter who we piss off in the process. And Mm -hmm. I don't care if we piss off Turkey. Who needs to go there anyway?
1: Explain why you think, though, that this is such a good thing that that it happened. Like, a lot of people might be listening to this and say, well, it was so long ago. Who cares? Why does it matter that it happened now?
2: It matters because Turkey is continuing to maintain that this a was lie. A, a straight lie. historic right. lie. It's, right. it's, as if, it's as if Iran was saying the Holocaust didn't exist and right. Iran was the cause of the Holocaust. Right. You know, right. If, if Germany yeah. was saying the Holocaust didn't right. exist, right, that's a better yeah. example. That's right? a better example. So, yeah. I don't think we'd allow them to get away with that. Right, no. And never. so we shouldn't allow Turkey to go away, get away with this. Right, Same.
1: yeah, so very good, very good.
2: What else? Uh, we are, as we know, uh, we are rejoining the, the Paris uh, Accords mm. And this is nothing new. We don't have to recount much of this, how I feel, how how you feel. Uh, Biden rejoined the Accords on the day one of his presidency. And recently he held a summit on the climate crisis, pledging Mm -hmm. to cut U.S. greenhouse gas pollution by 50 to 52 percent by 2030, which is significant. It's nearly doubling the cuts the Obama administration pledged to meet in the Paris Accords. So he's doubling down on on this, the the Paris Climate Accords, and he's raising the bar um, Yeah. Which has implications depending okay. on where you sit on the aisle. It could be bad. Could be good. I am very much uh, in favor of this, as we've talked about before.
1: Mm-hmm. I think um, I you know I know the 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 pitfalls of the Paris Climate Accord. Yeah. Um, I know that it held us to a higher standard than a lot of the rest of the world. But I think that is America's place in the world to be held to a higher standard. I like the fact that we are a leader in 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 the climate fight. It's important to me, and so uh, I thought this was good, Biden. I will. I will. Uh, categorize it as that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know where I yeah. said, if we're going to be yes. held to a higher standard, we got to hold people like China to a higher standard yep. and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I get it, man.
1: Alrighty folks. So that was a very long segment, probably our <laughs> longest segment ever. Basically I can't believe the we're entire show. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> so thank you for sticking with us. Now we have one last thing for you today. We couldn't come back after two months and not give you a topic of the day. And this is an exciting one because it's something we've been teasing since episode one of the podcast. This is the topic of the day.
2: It's a topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the
1: topic of the day. Topic of the day. You know, Justin, I heard from a friend's cousin's former roommate that you're actually a
2: deep state insider slash CIA agent. Is that true? Well, Rob, I was told by your uncle's cousin's grandmother's cat that you're an alien. Is that true? That's right, kids. The topic of the day today is conspiracy
1: theories. Oh, boy. Here we go. Yeah. Obviously, as most of you are aware, we live in an age where our politics is rife with conspiratorial thinking. We talk about it all the time. We've talked about it on this episode. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the Republican-led effort to embrace many of these theories for political gain. If you haven't checked out, by the way, kind of sidebar here, the HBO documentary that came out last month entitled Into the Storm, I highly suggest you do. It's about the QAnon conspiracy that has hundreds of thousands of subscribers on the right. And the movie gives uh, really interesting and compelling insight into how these kind of conspiracy theories get started. Uh, But what we're most interested in for purposes of this discussion is the psychological aspect of why people are so attracted to conspiracy theories in the first place. So a few years ago, I read a book uh, entitled Conspiracy Theories, the Roots, Themes and Propagation of Paranoid Political and Cultural Narratives It was by a guy named uh, Aaron John Goulias. He's an expert in conspiracies and how and why they start. What he outlines in this book is that there are two main human instincts that lead to our developing and believing in conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. One is our brain's inability to digest and contemplate extremely complex and chaotic events. For instance, the massacre that took place in Newtown, Connecticut at Sandy Mm -hmm. Hook Elementary School. That was in 2012. That has been the butt of various conspiracy theories since it happened, right? False flag conspiracies. This is a perfect example of a chaotic and complex event that many human beings are simply unable to wrap their heads around. In the book that I just mentioned, the authors suggest that it's also very difficult for people to accept the nature of true evil. A young man walking calmly into an elementary school and proceeding to murder 20 kindergarten students is not just an example of pure evil, but an event that causes so much chaos in the average person's brain that they immediately and almost instinctively as a defense mechanism jump to the idea that there must be more to the story than we're being told. In other words, it's literally a way for people to organize the chaos of a particular chaotic event uh, in their brains. Uh, If there's more to the story than we're being told, it's oftentimes easier to digest and compartmentalize the information than just having to accept an almost unfathomable scenario. Simply put, Conspiracy theories set our minds at ease by allowing us to organize unfathomable events in a way that makes the event easier to digest. The second human instinct that leads to our development of and belief in conspiracy theories is our inability to accept incompetence, especially at high levels of government. Hence the reason there are so many government conspiracy theories. As citizens, we want to believe that the people in charge, the people who work their way up to the highest levels of power, are the smartest and the brightest among us. Whether it's the CEO of your company or your state representative or the president of the United States, our instinct is to believe it was their skill, their intelligence, their general competence that got them to that level that they are at today. The truth is, and Justin will attest to this, I'm sure, is that elected officials in particular are in no way, shape or form immune from everyday incompetence, just like you or many of the people who may work in a cubicle in your office. Okay, in fact, you could probably probably make a pretty solid argument that oftentimes the people who work in your office are actually more competent than the people working in government. In order to get a job at a corporation, even a low level job, one usually has to possess some level of skill. To get elected to high office, there are literally no prerequisites. You don't need a degree. You don't need to take a civics test. You simply need charisma, fundraising ability, and very often a self-serving ego. So this (laughs) Right. This is why the mantra of many conservatives and libertarians for generations has been the slogan government sucks at everything. Government officials are not usually guided by profits, but guided by power. Whereas those working in the private sector are usually motivated by profit, thus incentivizing them to work harder and make less mistakes. So when things go wrong at high levels of government, mistakes are made. It's the perfect scenario for conspiracies to be conjured because our brains instinctively reject the notion that people who have made it to that high level in society could be incompetent. But lo and behold, as it turns out, the simplest answer is usually the correct one. Some conspiracy theories go on for decades or more, like the Kennedy assassination, for instance, where the simplest explanation of a lone gunman and a secret service that just sucked at their job was rejected by conspiracy theorists and a lot of people everywhere in favor of a much more sinister scenario. And it was even turned into an award-winning movie directed by Oliver Stone called JFK. But rather than having me go into the story, you guys are lucky today. Because I brought along my good friend, Justin, to buzz you up with one of the most famous conspiracy theories in American history. So without further ado, Justin, and some of the mystery, give me the history.
2: Aliens, Chemtrails, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, 9-11, the Clintons, the Deep State, Flat Earth, and New Coke. All conspiracy theories that are widely traded in circles all across our land. Which is fact and which is fiction, oh, we may never know. But the events of what may be the most compelling of all conspiracy theories occurred in November of 1963 in Dallas, Texas. Hello, and welcome to Buzz History, the JFK assassination. Buzz The world changed on November 22nd, 1963 as the car carrying President John F. Kennedy, Texas Governor John B. Connolly Jr., and both of their wives turned past the Texas School Book Depository at Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas for a campaign visit. Shots rang out and the driver of the president's topless limousine raced to nearby Parkland Memorial Hospital, but it was too late. President Kennedy would succumb to gunshot wounds to the neck and head. He was pronounced dead at 1 p.m. at 46 years of age. By 2.15 p.m., Lee Harvey Oswald, an employee at the book depository, was arrested for the assassination and would be murdered himself on live television two days later by local nightclub owner and police informant Jack Ruby. The Kennedy assassination is known as the mother of all conspiracies, with the number of books written about the event estimated at between 1 and 2,000. 95% of those books suppose a conspiracy related to the killing. In a poll conducted by 538, Just 33% of Americans polled believe Oswald alone killed Kennedy. Over 30,000 never-before-seen or unredacted documents were released to the public by the National Archives in 2017 and 2018, with another release set for October of this year. There are numerous conspiracy theories surrounding Kennedy's murder. In 1976, the Select Committee on Assassinations, which reinvestigated JFK's killing as well as Martin Luther King Jr., concluded that there was probably a second shooter on the grassy knoll, a hill overlooking the site where Kennedy was assassinated. There's one surrounding the Umbrella Man, seen clearly in the famous Zapruder film, waving the umbrella in the air as Kennedy drove past. Was it a signal to someone? Who knows? Some believe it was the mob in retaliation for Kennedy's inability to rid Cuba of Fidel Castro, who had shut down all of the mafia-run casinos, and JFK's brother, Robert Kennedy's crackdown of the mob as attorney general, even pursuing a case against Jimmy Hoffa. One conspiracy theory suggests that a secret or shadow government ordered the assassination, hoping for policy reversals in order to escalate the US military involvement in Vietnam. Some believe what is perhaps the most believable theory that Kennedy's own government pulled the trigger, specifically the CIA, over the rumor that Kennedy was going to disband them after discovering their plot to kill Cuban leader Fidel Castro. The evidence to some of these theories is lacking and to some compelling, but it's hard to really know what happened without integral information still held by the US government deep inside the National Archives. There have been a few document dumps where files from the archive have been released, but to this day, no smoking gun has been realized. There is one more release of files set to happen on October 26th of this year, but it's up in the air as to whether it'll happen at all. The files were all supposed to be released by October 26th, 2017, as mandated by the Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992, requiring all the material to be made public 25 years later. However, in a surprising turn of events, President Donald Trump yielded to concerns, possibly the only ones he's ever yielded to, by U.S. national security and intelligence agencies and allowed the release of what we have, a very small percentage of the total. The CIA requested a hold on a much larger batch as they needed more time to, quote, review the documents. In a presidential memo, Trump said that the move was to protect against identifiable harm to national security, law enforcement, or foreign affairs. According to the National Archives, around 15,834 files still contain redactions, and 520 remain unreleased in full. These files are all set to release unless President Biden decides to step in. Time will tell, and then maybe we'll know. This has been another Buzz History, or has it
1: Excellent Buzz History, Justin. I really, really enjoyed that one. Thank you. Um, yeah, so this is a conspiracy that's literally, we're in the middle of it still.
2: We are still in the middle of it. We're close right. to... We could be close to the end close, if Biden right. doesn't uh, stop the release of the documents.
1: But I think, you know, the Kennedy assassination has those two elements that I was talking about when yeah, I was right. the, mm-hmm. the this whole segment, which is that, you know, it's a very chaotic situation. We've all it's seen the videos. The nation. It, right? shocks the nation, right? Mm-hmm. And it involves you know, potentially incompetence at very, very high levels. You know, we, we see the kind of, uh, of security that the president has. We see, you know, and I, I, I remember just watching the Oliver Stone film and part of the conspiracy theory was coming. Like how was the idea that how could they possibly miss this? Mm -hmm. How could they not have protected him better when he was coming around that bend? Right. Sure. So all of that stuff leads to the, to the conspiracy and maybe Maybe some of them are true, but most of them aren't. Uh, you know, another event that I wanted to talk about that is probably one of the most conspiratorized, if that's a word, uh, sure, events is in, in, in world history is, is 9-11. Sure. You know, this is another perfect example of both those both those elements. OK, mm-hmm. you have a very chaotic situation that that involves pure evil. Right. Yep, you have yep. the idea that these terrorists trained themselves to fly commercial jets which isn't easy to do right mm-hmm. that took that took time and, yeah. and dedication and commitment hijacked planes and then you know flew them into large buildings and then you have the element of the incompetence that might have been coming from several administrations the Clinton administration Bush administration how yeah. did they miss this how did the people at the highest level of government with the most the highest level of, of intelligence available mm-hmm. miss something like this yeah. it's rife for for conspiracy theories there's it's not there's no wonder that I, I guess that's the main point to get across in this segment is that we we ridicule a lot of these people for coming up with things like this, and we have we have friends who personally believe in some oh, of these absolutely. things, right? And they're smart people, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it makes perfect sense from a psychological standpoint, from from a hu- from from an instinctual human standpoint, we can understand why people people resort to conspiracy theories to sort of sort all of this stuff out in their mind.
2: Sure, absolutely. But then right. you have the problem of the government saying that there's no such thing as UFOs, and then the past couple of years saying, well just kidding it, it's true
1: there is a lot of times where that happens and we'll get to aliens in a minute but yes yeah. the government sometimes goes back on things that they said you know differently 40 years ago and that also inspires people to say well why should i believe these people these yeah about any, maybe right yeah. about anything now i want to tell just one quick personal story because i think uh you'll enjoy it because you were actually there right yeah. but this this is a good analogy for for why conspiratorial thinking pops up, right? Okay. Um, So Justin and I had a band in Boston. The band was called the Neon Calm, by the way, C-A-L-M, Neon Calm. If you are looking for old evidence, there is both of our records on iTunes. Check it out. Check it out. iTunes, Apple Music and Spotify. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> but as a band in Boston, uh, we gigged quite frequently and we had a rehearsal space that was in the Fenway area of Boston yeah. where we used to store all of our gear. Now Fenway, uh, you know, is uh, where Fenway Park is. It's not the greatest area, but it wasn't a bad it area. Now. either. Now it's gotten worse, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, but what we used to do when we'd have a gig, we had one guy in the band, I think it was our keyboard player, um, mm-hmm. who I know it was our keyboard player, actually. Who <laughs> He was the only guy who had, like, a Jeep, um, like a bigger car. Yeah. So when we had a gig at a local, you know, venue, we would go we would drive the car his his van or his his jeep to the rehearsal space we'd load out all of our gear which you know this gear weighed collectively you know hundreds and hundreds of pounds it was a huge pain in the ass being in a band is a pain you know, in heaviest the ass being right up. in boston in the snow we would do all of that um you know this is before any of us had back problems <laughs> <laughs> seriously right um and we would load it up and That's why drive we it have to- back problems by the way right right exactly drive it to the venue. Um, unload all of the gear and play the gig, right? Now, I think this particular night, I'm pretty sure we were playing a bar called Bill's Bar, which was on Lansdowne Street. God only Mm -hmm. knows if Bill's Bar is still there. Do
2: you know? Uh, I think it is, actually. Okay. So
1: this was like a a premier venue in Boston that we played several times. And uh, I think I, I seem to remember our set being a little later than usual. Usually Mm -hmm. we'd play like nine or 10. This was like 11 o'clock set. I think we were the last band. We're playing with King
2: size this night.
1: I don't remember if it was that night but we yeah. I remember us being the last band and the reason I remember that is because usually when you're when you're the last band the the only benefit of that is you could kind of keep your gear on stage while you yeah. schmooze with the crowd um whereas if you're not the last band you have to get all your gear off right away so I remember us get playing the gig and it was a good gig and then us doing drinks and schmoozing in the crowd while our gear sat on stage and uh, normally after a gig, we would load up the 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 Jeep again with all of this gear, bring it back to our rehearsal space, unload it again, and lock it all up, right? Is Again, if this is sounding like a pain in the ass to you, it is. <laughs> but try doing it in the wind and snow and ice rain in Boston if you really want to get a feel for, for how it was, right? Um, this particular night, maybe we had had a few too many drinks, we were a little bit lazy. It was later than usual. Uh we all sort of collectively we loaded up the 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 Jeep and we were all sort of looked at each other and were like, why don't we just leave it one night? We don't wanna none of us wanted to go back and unload it again in the rehearsal space, right? What's the worst that could happen? It's one night, it's not a big deal, right? So we loaded up the gear, we left it in the car on a dark street in Boston, and the next day. I got one of the most devastating calls I've ever gotten in my life, which I I guess I have to presume that means I'm lucky because I haven't had a very tragic life, but this was extraordinarily tragic to me. Now, mind you, the gear that we had collectively in the car was worth tens of thousands of dollars, drums, guitars, amplifiers, all sorts of instruments. I just had my gear personally was upwards of $8,000, right? At the time I was a kid. I didn't have any money. My parents had bought me all of that. Uh, got the call from our keyboardist that the worst, nightmare had happened. Our The van was broken into and every single piece of gear was stolen, right? I had no insurance because I was an idiot, you know? I just didn't think like that. You, know, you don't think like that when you're a kid, right? And uh, it was just devastating. Actually, if you remember, Jay, I actually thought about quitting music at the because yeah, I thought, I like, recall. how am I going to get all of this gear again you know i just bought a custom guitar it was just it was really really bad And i had to of course call my parents and tell them about it. i think i
2: waited a day um i mean do you remember this vividly i don't actually it's an, really I, it's interesting hearing it i really i don't this is fascinating yeah you don't rem- yeah. you don't remember the details no not at all i remember the moment but i don't remember these details at all i don't right it's amazing you remember where we were playing yeah i
1: remember it just because it was so devastating you know maybe you didn't you weren't one that lost a lot of the gear or maybe the drums weren't in that yeah right You might have dropped those Um, off they
2: might have been in my car which was in a parking garage right as opposed to i had like a parking garage i paid for versus on the street right but anyway um i called my parents and i
1: told them what happened and they were of course devastated because they had, you know, not just for me as a musician, but for the fact that they were, they had lost, they paid for all of that gear. Right. And, uh, it was a really like rough week where we started figuring out what we were going to do. And, um, my parents just kept sort of like asking me questions about it. And over the course of like a week or two, um, it became clear that they were asking questions because they were starting to doubt the story that I was telling. And um I remember my mother specific I'm being on the phone with my mother and me being like, Why are you badgering me so much about this? I told you everything that happened, and we were just being stupid, right? And she was like, Well, I'll level with you. Your father and I just believe there's more to the story than we've heard. And I was like, really? What? What is the story? And I don't remember exactly what they had conjured, but they—I think they were thinking that we were trying to pull off some kind of insurance scam or something like. Like it was maybe so insured, and we were trying. Uh, we, you know, we were trying to get the gear stolen, or maybe we were keeping the gear so we could claim that it, it was stolen and buy more. Right. The bottom line is that. And I remember this wasn't just my immediate family. I remember my uncle calling me and saying, like, this whole story is fishy. Now, (laughs) now, why? Why did they think it was fishy? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about before. My parents and my family couldn't conceive of the fact that five grown adults who are relatively street smart guys who had lived in, in urban areas would leave tens of thousands of dollars of equipment in their car uninsured on a dark street at night and expect that everything would be okay in the morning so right away their their human instinct is to go to there's something there's something deeper on. here something else is going on because the simplest explanation is just too simple to to wrap our heads around the reality at you know 20 something years later and I, jay can attest to this justin can attest to this is that there was no uh ulterior motive there no. was no conspiracy going on this was just a case of human incompetence it was yep. just us being having a moment of laziness and idiocy and making a decision and it coming back to bite us in the ass yeah
2: as, so, as uh, you know children are apt to do yeah, sometimes
1: right, so bottom line is that that is a just for me a personal story of how these uh these theories get started, yeah. I don't even know if my mother will remember that story, but if she's listening, which I know she is, I will remind her that she and my father were strongly doubting the story that I was telling, um, and we were telling the correct story, the true story. So there you go. I can just hear the Long Island accent in my head. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, obviously the Republican Party has become the party of conspiracy theories in this in this era of history right yep. from from qAnon to some of the election fraud theories it very much has crossed over from the fringes of the party and become rather mainstream. A a Mm -hmm. lot of these theories, right? Deep state conspiracies, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, This idea that, you know, every institution of government from the FBI to the CIA to the state department. And of course the media is working on behalf of liberalism or socialism, or even just flat out evil forces, right? There has been a ton of reporting on this stuff coming out of deeply religious communities, like the evangelical community where apparently a large percentage of the community thinks COVID is a a communist, just hoax, right? As you would assume. And uh I think I think Talking about this topic at the tail end of this pandemic is fitting. It's a fitting time to do it because it yeah. like 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 nine eleven and like JFK, this entire pandemic will be the
2: butt of conspiracies for the next hundred years. Sure, it already because, is. I mean, people, are, right. you know, it's raw it's it's fraught with conspiracy theories now. You it's know, up there with JFK, yeah. with
1: nine eleven, with yeah. oh, with Sandy with with all of those, but maybe even more so. This might yeah. be the most conspiratorized, again, to use a word that I don't know <laughs> if it's actually a word, uh, event in 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 modern America. In history right mm-hmm. uh, because it fits all those elements extremely complex and chaotic situation and incompetence at high levels of government yeah. Yeah. which people just don't understand how to contemplate right but one of the things i wanted to talk to you about justin uh, be- because maybe you have some spiritual advice or mm-hmm. whatnot for how i should deal with this and, and it's, it's here's the problem i'm having so when we started this podcast The idea was that we would welcome and respect all opinions right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you listen to the first episode of the pod, we specifically say that this is a place for respectful discourse of respectful discourse, where we can disagree on things without resorting to name calling and ridicule. I remember you specifically saying, this is a place of respect, right? Mm -hmm. And here's the dilemma that I've been having with that idea. Mm -hmm. I am all about respectful discourse when it comes to a variety of topics that people generally disagree on in politics. If, if you have a different theory on economics than I do or role of government, or even solutions to climate change, different ideas on racial equity. If you uh, interpret certain constitutional amendments differently than I do, like the second amendment, or if you have uh, different opinions than I do about certain laws or morality, I'm game to talk about all of that stuff. That's compelling political discourse that is worthy of respect and dignity. The problem I have is that the right, The political right is moving in a direction where a lot of the ideas that have become mainstream are so crazy that they cross the line from worthy of respectful discourse over to worthy of public ridicule. Mm -hmm. The problem is that when you attempt to ridicule these people, they either accuse you of attempting to cancel them. Or say that you're not, uh, you know, able to handle uh, dissenting opinions or they'll call you a sheep or scream some stupid cliche like wake up. Tommy Lahren every day is like, wake up, people. This is happening. You know, I I hate that. Right. And and this ends up being that Gina Carano thing that we talked about on our very last podcast uh, episode where, where, where any dissenting opinion from the mainstream, any radical conspiracy theory, whether it's that Dominion voting systems was designed by Hugo Chavez. Is, or yeah. that COVID vaccines are designed to control us in some bizarre way. These theories are, just, are, are not just considered part of the conservative brand at this point, but those opinions or, or theories are expected to be given some kind of due respect. And so to get to my point, at what point do I stop having to respect your dissenting opinion? And do I actually get to publicly ridicule you? Because the problem is that the conspiracy theorists used to just be hanging out in the basement where normal people didn't have much interaction with them. Today, well, it's also because in case of aliens landing, you want to be in the basement. <laughs> it's very true, right? Today, however, the lunacy is so widespread and pervasive that if I choose ridicule as a way of defending myself, mm-hmm. I end up ridiculing 40% of the country that believes this. Yeah. Shit. So what do you think? What is your spiritual or religious advice on how I deal with this, especially if I have a podcast like this one that prides themselves on being uh, open to all, to all opinions and
2: respectful discourse all the time. Sure.
1: When do I draw the line and say, you're deserving of me ridiculing you?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, you know, spiritual advice or whatever you want to call it, I think it's a, human, it's a human issue in a human situation. I mean, you're trying okay. to connect with someone who's not connecting with you. Um, and I think... A lot of the times when you approach someone, you know, you're talking about you're also talking about them not respecting your view uh, at the same time. You know, it's it's a, yeah. it's a misconnection that's happening. And I don't think right. I don't know that public ridicule is ever a, a proper recourse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the conversation ends when you can't connect on something, when there's not a mutual respect, when there's not an ability to listen to each other and right. you don't have to that doesn't mean you have to agree with each other and if you don't want to listen to what someone who has a crazy idea or opinion or conspiracy has to say you have no mandate to listen to this person you, you, you right. do not have to do it right. um i don't know that public ridicule is necessarily the answer but mm-hmm. you don't have to sit there well, and you're a christian to also so <laughs> sure but also you, you don't have to sit there and listen to a crazy conspiracy theory you yeah. are more than welcome to walk away.
1: Yeah. It, it, the it's thing a, it's, I worry about is that it has become so pervasive now. And, and, and I think this ties into even why the corporations are getting involved with things like conspiracies surrounding voting. For sure. They're, they're essentially publicly ridiculing the people who, who believe in this nonsense. Yeah, but it's not
2: a way, that's not a way to stem the tide. Like, you can't stem the tide by making fun of someone. They're just going to come at you harder. That's, so, that's why
1: I asked this question. Yeah, yeah. no, it's yeah.
2: a very good question. There's got to be mm-hmm. other recourse. Um, and, and maybe it's just in, in time, um, the truth will out, you know, I think you have to do the, do the research and create the evidence for whatever it is, the thing, the the truth of the thing. I think that that becomes pervasive and that's what you lead with in the news and to those people and either they'll hear you or they won't, but at least you have the evidence that is left on the table for them to examine. I think
1: it's really all you can do. It's interesting. When I watched the the QAnon um, documentary that I was talking about, Into the Storm, I, you know, I was just shaking my head the entire time thinking, like, the people who believe this stuff, uh-huh. especially because the, the documentary gets to the bottom of who sort of came up with this, and it's, yeah. it's basically just one big troll. Yeah. Um, I, I just think to myself, like, these people, because they are so passionate and so fervent about about their belief system and they and they truly believe that you're the idiot yes there's there's a defense mechanism in me something. right right there's a defense mechanism in me to sort of point at those people in a public square and be like yeah. sorry you're a jackass
2: <laughs> and everyone should know it
3: yeah,
1: <laughs> you man, know i think
2: that's understand i think it's an understandable like knee-jerk reaction because you right. you you it's the evidence is so you know it's so obvious to you right that right. you're like well how are you not seeing this yeah. The important thing to do is to empathize and understand that they feel the same way, as wrong as they might be. Right. And to appeal to them isn't to tell them that they're wrong. It's just going to get you nowhere. Yeah. So yeah, either stop right. having the conversation or you have a dialogue with them and you provide your evidence and let mm-hmm. them sit on it and see if yeah. any of it, you know, hopefully they hear it in enough places and they see it in enough places. Some of it sinks in. It's yeah. not going to be everyone. Uh, but hopefully it's it's, you know, maybe... 30 percent of the country instead of right right so for all you sheep out there you could uh choose to take
1: justin's advice there when you're arguing with your uncle earl which i know a lot of you probably have to do so um lastly uh, we should talk a little bit about negatives and positives of the internet i mean i think this is pretty self-explanatory i don't even
2: think it needs discussion i mean all all negative no positive
1: (laughs) Right the the internet has exacerbated all of this stuff. Yes, um, it has taken the people that I was talking about in the basement um not just because of aliens but because they were couldn't get out of the basement because
2: yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason
1: <laughs> um you know it's taken them out of the basement and put them on a forum where they have where all
2: of your parents believe them.
1: Right, right. It, it it's it's you know the internet I think old I think you called this and you said this it's generation several episodes ago yeah i mean not not entirely Mm -hmm. um it's not that clear cut but i think older people are generally
2: more inclined to believe memes they read um they have less they're the same people that are falling still falling for phishing scams in their email exactly they have less of a bullshit detector than we do well especially when it comes to the internet they don't know what's real and what's not deep fake deep fakes look real to them um, you know, yeah. things that are completely fabricated that are easily fabricated in, you know, mm-hmm. Adobe Photoshop, right? Look, they're like, oh, this exists because they see it on right. their Facebook and and that's a part of the problem.
1: But just today, I don't know if you've heard this. I mean, uh, I think this was yesterday, actually, uh, the right-wing press was, was reporting that, um, Biden was, the Biden administration was going to curtail the amount of red meat one could eat yeah. in a year. Mm-hmm. Do you see this? Yeah. One and, burger, one, and- one burger a month. Yeah, the Biden see the Biden administration did what the Obama administration always failed to do, which was instead of ignoring it, they jumped on it right away and they mm-hmm. put out the correct information and frankly made Fox News who was reporting it and several other uh outlets look completely stupid and inept because yeah. they got the story so wrong. And uh you know, I I think the internet by by the time even with jumping on it as as fast as they did, it was still all over the internet memes have already gone out to millions and millions of people so there's already going to be a certain amount of people who are going to believe that i guarantee you in america today you could go to any town and ask people what you don't like about biden the most and they'll say well he's trying to limit the amount of meat i could eat the amount of hamburgers right yeah so people will just pick this stuff up and it becomes part of their ethos and that even if you correct them on it Mm-hmm. They've already, they're already, it's already been absorbed. It's yeah. already in there, right? So the internet has has made this all worse. I think it's a very big. Uh, I think it's it's very much responsible for for the the disc the the level of discord that we are seeing in our society today. Yeah, the pitting against each other, and we know for a fact that foreign adversaries. Engage in this to sort of splash the pot and and make it worse, throw fuel on the fire. We know that Russia targets certain with precision areas of the country where people are more prone to believe in these kind of things, just so they could start class warfares and race warfare, and you know all of this stuff is very bad for us on the world stage. Yeah, right? yeah, yep,
2: absolutely. Without so, a doubt.
1: Yeah. So anyway, uh, I think all of that even. Sort of goes without saying. The last thing is aliens. What do you want to say about aliens? Since we're on the topic of conspiracy theories, we couldn't leave without talking about aliens.
2: It's true. I think honestly, we need to talk to Tom DeLong about aliens. He was right all mm. along. He, yeah. Tom DeLong was right all along. And he created a, a he quit Blink one eighty two and he created mm. an entire uh company, a foundation to do research on UFOs. Yeah. And the guy was at the he was ahead of the information put out by the government, yeah, which was really something to see. You know, conspiracy theories
1: aside, I have always uh, taken the stance that that extraterrestrial life is real because um, scientists, most scientists, believe that it would be absolutely arrogant of us to think we are the only uh, intelligent life form on in the universe, True. right? True. But okay? those, same,
2: but those same scientists also said that it was. It, the the chances of them reaching us are like nil. Mm -hmm. Well
1: it is. I mean if you think of see because here's the thing. The universe is so,
2: so big, right? And it's so
1: you know, we're talking about millions or billions of galaxies in and Mm -hmm. of themselves, right? So it it is equally as unlikely that there is no other intelligent life anywhere in the universe as it is unlikely that they happen to be in our galaxy, of course, because anywhere we're, close we're, we're, yeah. right or anywhere close, right so i I understand both of those um, however, it, we are finding out now that military agencies have yeah. discovered these things. now we don't have any hard, concrete evidence yet, but I think in our lifetime we will see evidence of of uh intelligent life or at least some other life. Yeah, Who feels knows, that hey, way. Intelligence is subjective.
2: Maybe they're maybe they're dumb. Maybe we're <laughs> yeah. the dumb ones. It's possible. That's right. Yeah. If you believe all the movies, that's certainly the case. Yeah. So uh, that's it, man. I, I got to say, before we sign off, yeah. uh, an early happy anniversary to you, Rob. On May 18th, 2020, mm-hmm. we released episode one of this podcast. If wow. You can it. It's coming so
1: almost up. Almost a year ago. Coming up. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So So, you know, guys... We've had a hell of a ride. We will continue this as much as we possibly can. We have plans still for the intermediary. Absolutely. Uh, we, we need to get settled in our new jobs and our new places and, uh, figure everything out. Um, lastly, I would like to say that, um, leaving California, as we talked about at the top of the show is definitely an emotional thing for me. Yeah. But, uh, the, la- uh, Uh, A couple weeks ago, I went with my family on a sort of goodbye California uh, Mm -hmm. vacation and we drove up the coast. We went up to San Francisco. We stopped in and it was just beautiful weather. If you have never been to San Francisco, try to go when the weather is gorgeous. It is just one of the most amazing cities in the world. I'm just Mm -hmm. amazing. Um, We, we stopped in Carmel on the way back. Um, We were in Santa Barbara. Uh, We went to Sonoma and, uh, then, just this last weekend, we rented a house in Palm Springs, which is, if you've never been to Palm Springs, it's a, a, another incredibly unique area because the, mount, the, the mountains are so close to the town. It's like you've never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at all of it, and I'm thinking to myself, as much uh, of trouble as California is seemingly in right now, it will always bounce back. And it will bounce back. People will always come to California because of its scenic beauty. And the fact that there's just no place in the world like it. I mean, there's really that cliche you could ski and snowboard uh, or you could, uh, sorry, that cliche that you could, you could surf and and ski in the, in in the same day. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is true. Uh, There's just so much here. That's, that's beautiful. And I'm really going to miss it, but I, I guess I want to just make one sort of shout out to California that I love this state. It will always be my home state. I, when people ask me where I'm from now, I'm going to say LA and, uh, I am not worried that California won't bounce back from the slump it's in.
2: And uh, that's it. Amen, I'm with it.
1: Anything else to add, Justin, before we sign
2: off after putting these people through nearly three hours? I know. Uh, no, I'm not going to let you sit through another minute. Thank you guys for yeah. listening. Thanks for being with us again. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Yep. Um, feel free to reach out to us in the, yep. in the space between now and our next episode, which will be happening. Yep. Um, we're here. We'd love to talk politics with you. And so yep. uh, hit us up. On our Discord or on our socials, we're around. And one more thing, we are going
1: to revive our Instagram. A lot of you yes. have probably noticed that we, we stopped we we didn't feel it was appropriate to do that while we were taking time off. Um and we really needed to focus while we were taking time off. Yep. So that will be coming back and we will hopefully be getting back into the groove some regular episodes again in the near future. So thank you again for listening and uh take
2: care. All right, take it away, announcer.
1: This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation.
0: Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us.
1: If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air.
2: Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram,
1: at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars,
3: people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now.